Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Manila, today is a special day. Today is a great, great day. Maybe the greatest. Because it's Cinco de Mayo. Uh, okay, there's that. <laughs> there's that. But there's something else that's taking place today, which may make it the greatest day and a historic day going forward. For one, the card season finale, season two is coming out today. Oh my goodness! But more importantly, Strange New Worlds is coming out today. First episode. I don't even, today. even know what that is. All I know is yesterday I said, "May the fourth be with you." And you were just like, eh, because <laughs> that's Star. That's Star Wars. Uh, Wars and Trek. Right. So yesterday we were like, eh, whatever. And I was like, but May the 4th. So wait, there's something going on with the 4th in regards to Star Wars? Yes, because it's it's a line, you know, May the Force uh-huh. be with you. And so the joke, the pun, every May 4th in the past 40 I don't know, 45 years, I guess. Since oh, May 4th be with May you. The fourth, ah, May I the 4th be with you. That's cute. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair and enough. so yesterday was ours, I guess. Today's your day. Yeah. But the Strange Trekkie New Worlds. Day. Strange New Worlds. Um, that is going to be Christopher Pike. And okay. people in the Star Trek community have been clamoring for a real Star Trek. And so they came out with Discovery and people were like, what the hell is this? This is not Star Trek. I don't even call disco Star Trek. And I got into an argument with the woman at the pot shop the other day. She was like, no, it's really good. And I'm like, I wanted to say, you're saying that because that's a black woman that they put there. But that is a horrible, horrible show. Let's be honest about it. I've seen commercials for it. Oh, it sucks. It is so bad. It is such a horrible, horrible show. I don't even know why they put that out. Season four was better. But you put in a person who is, let's say, a second in command. And because you want to focus on her as entirely everything, then the captain defers to her. Why? Why is the captain deferring to her? Never happened before. She blows off anything that the captain says. The captain says, go do this. She takes off and goes elsewhere. So she's rogue. She's rogue. She's never punished for this, by the way. Rogue. And they're like, oh, no, it's a really good series. That series sucks. And then it's like, they have all of these non-binary characters, which they focus on heavily. And so Star Trek, which was already the peak of diversity in regards to that, you've had lesbian couples. You had the first kiss between a, black, a white woman and a black guy, a uh, um, white man and a black woman, Kurt and Ahura, um, Ahura. All of that stuff took place, right? But now they're like, we need to take that up to a 20. You don't need to do that. And, oh, I will tell you this. If you want to emphasize diversity in a cast, you don't have the character in the cast continuously talking about their race or sexual identity. It undermines it. It puts too I much agree. of a focus on it. It's like Ahura. I agree. Yeah, Ahura was a great member of that cast. Not because every moment she's like, I'm black and I'm going to be expected. It wasn't that. It's we have gotten to the point where we are incorporated into this, where race, sexual identity, and all of that stuff matters less because you're accepted as a human right, being. Right, because this is the future. Right. right. But even if it's not the future, the idea that the person is there and is accepted, not right. because the person is black or gay. I or agree. Or yeah, For the character. same reason that Asian Americans are cast in whatever role, it, it it usually revolves around their race. Yes. And not just being like, hey, that's Jennifer. That's a person. It's just Jennifer. Yeah. It's not Jennifer is Japanese. Right. And we need like, to talk about the Japanese-ness of Jennifer right. constantly. Like, 
it's that, like this is a non-binary character and then it's like every moment it's like oh i feel seen every episode i feel seen i feel seen it's like oh stop that is stop. the hollywood the hollywood the version vocification yes. of star trek the, that's the hollywood version of representation yes is by underscoring instead of just just having characters be characters that are multiracial whatever yeah how about this focus on the story right just no more no less have the gay character have the binary character have all of that stuff in an awesome story that's it no more no less that's the trick that's the trick you don't have to say, you don't have to give this kind of message of diversity and inclusion and this person is not binary this person is gay and we need to talk about the gayness and other right just stop just be the character batwoman for example where I never watched it. Nobody watched it. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And they were like, there's this ep- the series or a commercial for it that is the most ludicrous and ridiculous thing that got laughed. She was like, she sees the bat suit and she was like, that suit will be perfect once it suits a woman. Batman oh, has been an established character for God knows how long. Oh. And you're saying that Bruce Wayne, all of the training and everything else, that suit is going to be perfect once it fits a woman. I'm, I'm, I'm going to call for the next franchise breakout yeah. to be Catman. Catman. Instead of cat, well, I want to <laughs> right, Catman right. in an all-black tight skin suit. That would be great. I'd watch that. That would be uh, interesting <laughs> costuming is all I'll say. But Strange New Worlds is what Star Trek community has been screaming for. And so this was Christopher oh. Pike. Christopher Pike was just before Captain Kirk. Everybody knows that has ever watched Star Trek because initially the first episode of Star oh, Trek was Pike. Oh, I didn't know that. But the first two episodes and uh, producers thought it was too cerebral because it was a little weird. Pike was an anger maniac a little bit in the old thing. Okay. Because he got captured and he was like, I must create my rage so they can't get into my mind and all this other oh. stuff. It wasn't a horrible episode, but Kirk was far better, far more likable, far more this kind of cowboy-esque type thing. And so Strange New Worlds is going to be the adventures of Pike, which is going to be very similar to the original series. So people are excited. This was the trek that they wanted, and it's in continuity. Oh, I've so seen the background of all this stuff. I never watched. Oh, I am, man, excited. Greatest day ever. Maybe. We'll see how it goes. Unless you're disappointed. Yeah, tomorrow I'll be like, this is horrendous. They ruined my they day. They ruined my story. They ruined Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> I should have gone out and got some tacos and beer. Yeah. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to um, overly, you know, um, emphasize it. Even though my joy is just overwhelming at this I moment. can see you are like beaming and excited. There's, I'll give one episode, one thing. Pike, in the end of it, everybody knows Pike gets destroyed massively where he's sitting in a little chair and he's eventually in this thing where he can't talk, he can't move or anything else. And the only way he can say yes or no is like a little button that goes beep or beep. Horrible, horrible situation. And so everybody knows that that's how Pike ends up. Pike knows that that's how Pike ends up because Pike had the opportunity to touch a time crystal and that time crystal gave him a glimpse of the future that he was told, if you take it, you're going to be stuck with it. Pike falls back, like seeing this and he's like shocked by this. He's completely destroyed by this. And he's getting himself together and he's like, I'm a Starfleet officer, I'm a Starfleet officer. And he grabs the crystal and moves on. Now he grabs it because if he didn't grab it, the entire existence itself would have been at stake. The the amazing part of that is this recognition of, yes, I'm a man and I don't want to encounter this, this is gonna hurt and everything else. But more than being a man, I am a Starfleet officer. Meaning his conception of itself expanded beyond the point of what he does as an individual. Yes, the weaknesses and everything else were subordinate to his role as a Starfleet officer. Meaning how do you see yourself is radically important in regards to what you believe you can accomplish and what you believe your responsibilities are. And in that very specific sense, 
grabbed that crystal, accepted his fate. Oh, he's it. I, I am so excited. Complicated character. Yes, yes. Unlike Robert Pattinson as Batman. <laughs> less, less complicated. All right, more, more complicated stuff, though. Let's get to headlines. Complicated stuff happening in the world. Uh, domestic news first. Let's go to the U.S. Supreme Court. SCOTUS Justice Sam, Samuel Alito has canceled an upcoming speaking appearance at the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals Judicial Conference, a gathering of New Orleans-based federal appeals court judges and district court judges from Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. The matter was reported by Reuters, confirmed by, by excuse me, Patricia McCabe, a spokesperson for the high court. She says, quote, We cannot allow our decisions to be affected by any extraneous influences, such as concern about the public's reaction to our work. She was reading off Alito's uh, comments regarding the leak that shook the world. Well, at least in America. That's <laughs> right. Nobody else cares. <laughs> right. Literally nobody else cares. And then U.S. Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, said during a congressional hearing that the new disinformation governance board established by the Biden administration cannot be trusted at all because the federal government is the biggest propagator of disinformation in the world. Round of applause to Rand yes. Paul. And he's right. Absolutely this should have right. had hysteria written across that ministry of truth. Are you insane? Is that the government that is a First Amendment is now saying we are going to be the determining factor about what's true and what's false. That is radically disturbing. All and it should I have been across the board. There's going to be a lot of 1A lawsuits coming up. Yeah. Because the government is not supposed to wade in no. to the First Amendment. No. You're supposed to be able to speak and say whatever you... Alex Jones, let him say whatever he wants. Yes. It's up to you if you want to believe it. Yes. But can Alex say whatever he wants? Let the man talk. And let's be clear. The reason they're doing this is because of a clear and radical insecurity right. of people not trusting media. Of dissenting. Yeah. I was looking yeah. at the um, rankings for media. It is the lowest that it has ever been with the exception of maybe like one year. Meaning these guys are chest stumping and patting themselves on like, oh, we're so great at our jobs. Look at how great we're Yes, we're great. Yes, we're great. And then the public the, the, is like. dinner at the White House. Yeah. The public is like, you guys suck. You guys are horrible. They know that. Regardless of what they say, they know that. They know that there's been a bifurcation yes. of media sources and everything else, and they are radically insecure about their state in that. So their responsibility at that point is get rid of those sources. They want to live in their little bubble. Yes. And they want to force that bubble on you. Where everybody else is like, I, bro, I can see you. Yes. I, I can see you're not wearing any pants, bro. Yes. It's we like, can see you. I can see your penis, dog. Like I this, can see it. Uh, Emperor's got no clothes. Right. We can see it. Yes. Uh, so... Rand Paul went on to say this. He says to to Homeland uh, Secretary Alejandro Alejandro Mayorkas, he says this. He says, I think you've got no idea what disinformation is. And I don't think the government is, is capable of doing it. Not disinformation, capable of running this thing. <laughs> he says, do you know who the greatest propagator of disinformation in the history of the world is? The U.S. government. And then Senator Paul went on to support those points by highlighting the Pentagon Papers, the former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara's role getting the U.S. involved in the Vietnam War. He cited President Ronald Reagan lying during the Iran-Contra affair. Whoops, that's 
and former President G.W. Bush lying about the existence of weapons of mass destruction to justify the invasion of Iraq. I would say those are pretty damning support. Agreed. Agreed. And by the way, it costs millions of lives. Many, this isn't a trivial Alex Jones life. This right. is millions of people are dying as right. a result of something that a particular right. administration This is isn't, doing. oh, the U.S. government hurt my feelings. Yeah. This is, there are, are real kinetic results that come from a government lie. And those are it. Uh, international news. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky really did want a war with Russia. Otherwise, he would have negotiated long before the Kremlin's military operation began. That is according to the former president of Brazil and a candidate who's standing in the upcoming elections. You all know him as Lula, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. Ah, He said that in an interview with Time magazine that just came out last night, Lula said, Lula discussed rather a wide range of you know, issues with his home country, global problems. And he touched on the the events unfolding in Ukraine. He said, quote, he did want war. If he didn't want war, he would have negotiated a little more. That's it. Plain and simple. I think Lula's, Lula's assessment, pretty fair. And he's very popular. If they hadn't, you know, taken him out, thrown him in jail, all that stuff, stopped him from running, he, he would be in office right now. Yes. And they would have had all those people die from COVID. Uh, ooh. Well, that's a whole different conversation. Uh, also, the U.S. has provided intelligence that aims at assisting Ukrainians in targeting and the killing of several of the Russian generals in action in the ongoing military operation in Ukraine. The New York Times reported on Wednesday citing U.S. officials' claims. According to that report, the as Ukrainian authorities claim to have killed at least 12 Russian generals... Military analysts have reportedly been baffled by this uh, very high number. I think we should all be baffled by that high number. U.S. officials supposedly have declined to specify the number of any high-ranking officers that have purportedly been killed. Yeah. The Chinese government ran a comprehensive stress test drill in late February and early March to model what impact Western sanctions similar to those imposed against Russia would have on its own economy. That's according to The Guardian, citing a source familiar with this exercise. Mind you, they're just running models. So it's just a, a lot of brainiac people running models about if this sanction were imposed on us, what would the Chinese economy look like? So the test reportedly involved key government agencies, including bank regulators, international trade bodies, and officials were tasked with formulating emergency measures to be taken if restrictions were imposed. Quote, those involved in this exercise used how Russia was treated as a baseline for China's own policy response should it be treated in the same fashion by the West. This stress test involves a range of methodology, including modeling. So that probably piques your attention to go, hmm, are they worried about how the U.S. might respond to Taiwan? Yes, that's exactly what it is. How could they not? Yeah. I mean, is Ukraine that radically different from what's taking place in Taiwan? You know, this kind of area on the border, and it's not the border, but I get it. You know, they're considered part of China. You're putting in weapons, training, et cetera, et cetera. You're basically saying, hey, we're going to back Taiwan. And if China... Parse it away. Yeah. And if China does anything in a sense... So it's like... 
Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, the Chinese, you know, are looking at their economy. And they consider that a red line also. And yeah, that not only is it a red line, but I have a feeling their modeling is going to prove, you know what, the world is really reliant on us. So we'll win. Yeah. When it becomes a, a world economic war, the Chinese will win, guys. Yeah. It's just, let's not go there, please. Tech News PayPal has released nearly $10,000 it has seized from alternative media outlets. Consortium News, the site's editor-in-chief, has now told the press, uh, allowing it to withdraw its funds after stating they could be held for up to six months without explanation. Consortium News editor Joe Lauria noted the reversal on Wednesday, writing that the U.S. payment company had informed the site the funds were, quote, eligible for withdrawal. After freezing $9,348 over unspecified risk exposure associated with the account. Consortium News immediately withdrew the funds, Gloria says, adding that PayPal gave no reason for its reversal as it had given no reasons for its initial action. In Earth Science, an undisclosed cave in Alabama has revealed thousand-year-old cave paintings, some of which are now thought to be the largest in the U.S. Until recently, the mud glyphs were lost to the naked eye after mud naturally accumulated on the cave's walls in the millennium that followed its creation. Janice Simic and team were of archaeologists published a research paper on Tuesday in the journal Antiquity detailing an exciting discovery of cave art found in Alabama that is at least a thousand years old. The paintings were created by indigenous North Americans prior to the Spanish invasion of that area back in 1565. The Alabama cave, which remains unnamed to protect its location and its contents, were first recognized to contain cave art in 1998. So now using 3D, I don't know this word, but I think it's a photogrammetry. Special photography technique that produces digital models that can be manipulated in virtual spaces. So that's interesting. Maybe you'll feel it in your mouth with the VR headset. <laughs> um, researchers have discovered some of the largest known Native American cave art right there, which nobody knows about because they won't tell you where it is. <laughs> And real quickly, uh, business news here. Slovakia warned on Wednesday that it will not be able to agree to the European Commission's proposals for a ban on Russian oil and has called for more time to find alternative fuel suppliers. The proposed embargo is part of the latest Ukraine-related sanctions against Moscow that would see crude imports from Russia phased out within six months and refined products by the end of the year. An exemption was drafted for Slovakia and Hungary, which are heavily dependent on Russia, giving them until the end of 2023 to comply. And this day in history, 1904, Cy Young pitches the first perfect game in in modern, at least modern, Major League Baseball. 1921, Chanel number no. five perfume was introduced. Women still wear that today. 1934, the first Three Stooges film is released. 1949, the Council of Europe is founded. 1955, West Germany regains full sovereignty after World War II. And then in 1980, the British Special Air Services, or better known as SAS, terminate 
the Iranian embassy siege in London. That is going to do it for your headlines on this Thursday, Cinco de Mayo. You are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. Let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to get into the monologue. Fault Lines. Thomas. Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone, not to mention slam that rumble button. But if you want to call in, you can do so at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. The big news of today, at least I think the big news, and I would call it shocking and astonishing, but I can't really call it that anymore just because the actions that many of these world leaders have taken in the West have been utterly appalling in relation to their own constituent populations in favor of Ukraine. And it's not even in favor of Ukraine. It's almost like the opposite in favor of Ukraine from the standpoint of the population, the country, et cetera, more so about using Ukraine and keeping it in a Western orbit in order to use it as a knife at the throat of Russia. And in this very particular situation, the knife has been unsheathed, and they have been trying this economic war, not to mention dropping any weapon and bullet and gun that they can into Ukraine in order to put it into the hand of kids and old men to kill Russians. The context of this needs to be understood. Their European Union, an economic union, is making a decision to come up with an oil embargo. Now, they've already did the coal embargo, but now they're going to oil. And when you think about it, what is oil? Oil is a representation of basically energy. Energy for industry and all of those things are entirely and vitally necessary for those particular economies in order to even function. So this is an economic union that is supposed to be organized for the best in regards to the economics of those particular countries in Europe. And they are making a choice that is going to radically expand the cost of energy. That's assuming they can even find replacements for it. That is going to decimate their own economies. How weird is that? And what is the context of this? What is the context of this? And is it going to have the stated effect? 2014, the Yanukovych government gets overthrown in a violent, violent coup. Now, the U.S., because this was a government that was more in line with Russia, at the very least, was open to having conversations and communications with Russia. This government was elected by the East, Russian-speaking Ukrainians, and the West. It was a legitimate government. That government gets overthrown by neo-Nazis backed by the U.S. financially and enthusiastic politicism associated with it, not to mention NATO nations. And instead of calling it a coup, which is exactly what it was, they call it a revolution of dignity. And that's basically what they said and repeated over and over and over again. They didn't care that it was an actual coup. In fact, they cheered it on. They didn't care about the number of people that died in that. And after the coup government takes power, Russophobic coup government, Crimea, votes to leave. Donetsk and Luhansk decides to become independent. 
Now, they're still within the context of Ukraine, even in the context of this independence. This was not a situation where these guys basically ran into the Russian orbit. That is not true. These are Russian-speaking regions. They understood that the illegitimate government that had taken place was a Russophobic government. The Ukrainian government, the coup government, opens up a campaign of terror against those groups for eight years. And over those eight years, this country and Europe didn't care one iota. Because even though it was Ukrainian, Ukrainians killing Ukrainians, these were Russian-speaking Ukrainians, and so they're not accepted as Ukrainians. The level of racism associated with this is utterly astonishing. And yet, here we are. So, Europe and the U.S. knock over a government, and the response, or let's say the consequences, cause and effect, of knocking over that government is that other areas in Ukraine decide that they don't want to be a part of it because they can't trust the illegitimate government. Start from there. My point in saying all of this is, this is something that the West provoked. They provoked. And then after provoking it, and Russia responds to it, which they knew Russia was going to respond to it. Again, this was a red line going back for 40 years or so. Yet means net. You can go back and look at William Burns, the current CIA, where he makes the point that, look, Russia considers this a red line. If we continue to push in Ukraine, a situation is going to happen where Russia is going to get into a conflict that it doesn't necessarily want to get into or allow itself to be encircled. And by the way, no sovereign power will allow itself to be encircled, to get into a fait accompli where any conflict that kicks off, the other powers have an overwhelming advantage. The U.S. wouldn't even accept that in Cuba, which is not on their borders, not on their borders. So why would Russia accept that? The context of all of this has been very messy in the way it's been reported in the West, and it is far grayer than they have been making it seem. So now, with that context stepped into just a little bit, you get Europe and the U.S. saying, we're going to have an economic war. We're going to utterly decimate the Russian economy. That's what we're going to do. Great. How are you going to do that? We're going to do that by passing sanctions. Okay, great. And they pass those sanctions. And the ruble takes a hit. And then Russia comes out and does exactly what I thought they were going to do. All right, if you guys want to do this, you need to pay us some rubles because you've basically stolen our money. Billions of dollars, $300 billion. You've stolen that. And you're making it impossible for us to use your currency. So why would we use a currency that we can no longer use? It is worthless to us. Pay us in rubles. Well, what happens? The price of gas goes up. And over the course of this time, the dirty little secret is that Russia has been getting more money, not less. Because the actions that Europe has been taking has been spiking the cost of energy around the world. So an economic war that was supposed to decimate Russia, instead has been decimating the United States and Europe with all sorts of spikes and levels and increases in inflation. And it is only going to get worse. The U.S. has a massive trade deficit increase. Recession, 1.4% drop. The New York Times said that's great. That's not great by any other measure. This is only, what, two, three months into this conflict. And now Europe is coming out. We're going to do an oil embargo. That's what we're going to do. Okay, do you have the capability of your various nations to support that oil embargo? No, but we're going to figure it out. And we're going to figure it out by the end of the year. Okay, now the reality of it is that because of what they're doing, the price of gas and oil has basically gone up. From the standpoint of Russia, their coffers are filled. Looking at the New York Times in this report, just to, just to give a little bit of context to this. Initially, Oil prices rose sharply after Ms. von der Leyen spoke on Wednesday morning with Brent Crew, the international benchmark, shooting up 3.7% to $108 a 
a barrel. They even make the point that the amount of money that Russia was able to basically get going back, let's say, a few years ago, they almost doubled this year. If you think back, the price of gas or price of oil at one point was around 40 bucks at some point. I mean, the number had basically dropped. And now we're up to over $100 a barrel. So Europe is going through with this oil ban. Okay, great. And suppose it's going to take place by the end of the year. Okay, great. What does this mean for Europe? Right here. Another danger is that Putin might be willing to offer discounts to countries in exchange for political backing on an international stage. Russia has already enticed India by shaving $30 off the price of a barrel. And in fact, it will backfire, at least in the short term, for European countries. Right here. Naturally, that will be idiocy. German economic minister Robert Habeck told domestic TV viewers on Thursday, quote, no one should be under any illusion. We will see enormous price spikes. The pain will be felt, Habeck warned, but it would no longer lead to a national catastrophe. It will hurt monstrously, but it won't be a catastrophe. Is that where Europe is going? That this is going to hurt monstrously in an economic sense? But hey, it is no longer going to be a catastrophe. So, you know, it's okay that we're going in this particular direction. That is astonishing that they're allowing this. And again, this is an economic union. The EU gets about 27% of its crude oil imports from Russia, a higher share of its oil products, paying billions of dollars a month. Diplomats have seen the proposed sanction documents, which have not been made public, said Hungary and Slovakia will be given until December 23rd to ban Russian oil and more concessions to be made before the embargo is finalized. The two countries with outsized dependence on such imports made up a small fraction of EU oil imports. The phased approach of the embargo reflects how hard and expensive European officials are expected it to be to find alternatives. And they don't know where they're going to get those alternatives from. So be clear. An economic union that helped provoke a conflict in the first place is now willing to cut itself off from cheap sources of energy in order to pay for much higher sources of energy that they're not entirely sure where they're going to get those sources of energy from. Whereas India, China, and other countries are going to accept that oil, which means that Russia is not going to go without providing that resource to other countries, and that those countries are going to get that product at a discount. But understand, the discount is still higher than what they were getting a few years ago. So if Russian oil or gas is at $100 a barrel, okay, great. And we're going to give it to India for $70 a barrel. That is still more than that they were making prior because of the price spike that was created by the quote-unquote economic war that was supposed to decimate the Russian economy that instead has been calling all sorts of havoc in the United States and in Europe. Europe is decimating its economic and its industrial sector for what? For what? For Ukraine? They keep Ukraine in their orbit? Think about what we're saying for the moment. An economic union is decimating itself economically. And it's not even accomplishing the objectives that they said they're going to accomplish. Because the objective of all of this, all of this, all of this, got to pay for our values, all of this is specifically related to we're going to decimate the Russian economy. And while there may be effects on the Russian economy, I don't doubt that, from the standpoint of the revenues that they're getting from the main source that they're trying to get rid of, that's not working. This is not going according to plan. Whether it's the weapons that are being dumped into Ukraine, whether it's this attempt to decimate the Russian economy, the reality of it is that Russia is going to be making more money off of oil and gas. They're building their pipelines to get that stuff over to China. And from the standpoint of India taking the deals, why wouldn't they take that deal? If they're going to give that stuff up, our economic sector, our needs for oil and energy, we'll take it. We'll take that deal because we are going to be better off as a result of getting cheaper 
energy. Whereas Europe is making the decision to pay exorbitantly more for energy. It's astonishing when you think about it. Not only do you guys provoke a war, and then from the standpoint of provoking a war, you take this economic policy in order to decimate the country. A, the war isn't going according to plan in the way that you want. B, the weapons that you're sending aren't necessarily getting to the various zones because despite the reports that, oh, Russia's going to run out of weapons and missiles. Well, those precision-guided missiles open up a broadside yesterday, almost a repudiation of them saying that they're going to run out of missiles. But those attacks were specific to preventing that weapons and those materials that are being dumped into that country from getting to point A to point B, which is the battlefield. So not only are the weapons not having the desired effect, the economic war that is supposed to decimate Russia is instead decimating Europe. It's astonishing the level of calamity and competence. Um, Manila, we need to go to our guests, but what's your take on this? I mean, they're basically shooting themselves in the foot. They're supposed to be together for the best of economics for themselves. And instead, it's the opposite of no. what's happening. I, I mean, obviously, our, our, com- our guest that's about to come yeah. on here will be the best suited person Absolutely. to discuss this sort of stuff. But in my opinion, it would be that it shows you that most of these European countries are kind of just client states to the U.S., to the will of the U.S. They bend to the will and the desires of the U.S. Um, as the U.S. tries to maintain its global 20th century hegemony uh, rather than embracing the 21st century model of economics and um, accepting the fact that these BRICS nations like China and Russia, they have rose. They have risen over the past 30 years. And it, the 21st century looks very different than the 20th. And uh, the U.S. hegemony, at least economically and militarily, um, is being challenged. And I think a lot of these European states have to also get up to speed with that and and have the courage to break away from having the U.S. dictate what they will do and what's good for their own people. This is not to sound like MAGA for Europe, yeah. but but basically, you kind of have to do that. I mean, a lot of these European states, that I mean, this is exactly why the U.K. broke away mm-hmm. from the EU bloc. Yeah. Because they wanted, they didn't want to become one big blob of country. They wanted to be independent. And that this is exactly why Brexit happened. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, it became a client state of the United States instead of a client state of Europe. Right. right. So it's like, well, yeah. all right. Who's my boss Who's now? Who's my boss? <laughs> Let's do this. Let's go to our guests. You guys are listening to The Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. We're going to continue this conversation with an expert. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan along with my co-host Jamal Thomas. Let's bring in our most qualified guest this morning. His name is Steve Gill. He is an, an attorney and CEO of Gill Media out in Nashville, Tennessee. He's based in public affairs, media, and marketing company. He also served as the Director of Intergovernmental Affairs or the U.S. Trade Representative. So like I said, pretty qualified guy to talk about this stuff. Uh, Steve, nice to have you on with us this morning. First, what do you think about all of these sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on Russia? I mean, I know it was intended to cripple Russia's economy for this invasion in Ukraine and what have you, but 
Would you say this Biden inflation is tied into some of those sanctions? You know, unfortunately, I'd have to compare the Biden policies uh, on this and many things with with the old cartoon Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. Every time Wiley Coyote came up with these schemes, uh, the next thing you know, he's getting an anvil dropped on his head. And I think that's what we're seeing with these sanctions uh, uh, imposed against Russia. I mean, you guys have been right on point. <clears throat> the only argument I would make is that rather than than uh, kind of moving forward to a new economic model of, of the uh, of the next century, I'd say they also need to take a look back historically and maybe take a look to Adam Smith and the wealth of nations or just the fundamentals of economics of supply and demand. Again, kind of like the anvil dropping on the head of Wiley Coyote. We can deny gravity if we want to, but it's a reality and it will come to bite you in the rear end if you try to ignore it. Uh, ignoring the law of supply and demand when we try to impose these sanctions ignores the reality, and it's already hurting the American consumer, the European consumer, and, and there's more to come. It's amazing when you look at it. Russia made $74.4 billion from its oil exports during the pandemic hit from 2020 when the prices were depressed, rising to $110 billion last year. And so it's like this year where crude prices trading higher, it's expected to reap as much $180 billion from crude sales. So let me get this straight. These guys have an economic war to decimate the Russian economy. And this year, during the economic war, they're expected to get $180 billion from crude oil sales. It's astonishing. I mean, what is the effect of Europe going to be with these sanctions if they're able to get rid of oil in the way that they're talking about it at the end of 2022? This seems farcical to me. Um, and you have some of these states that are basically pushing back on it. But what is going to be the effect when Europe is paying far more for gas or for oil when other countries around the world, let's say India and China, Industrial nations and the way that they're growing will be paying markedly less. What is going to happen to Europe in this situation? Well, I think, I think uh, first of all, the Russian policymakers are going to be going, hurt us some more. <laughs> As our wallets are exploding. And the same thing with, uh, with our economic competitors in China and India. Uh, they're, they're going, hey, yeah, hurt the Russians some more because this is helping give us a big advantage. I mean, you make a great point that it's not just the oil uh, aspect of, of both higher profits for Russia, but also uh, and a, a, a much uh, bigger advantage for India and and sort of the economic now client states of Russia. It's not just gasoline and diesel fuel that is that is part of this whole oil equation. You have to you know, manufacture things using oil. You have fertilizer that's used in the agriculture industry that relies on oil. Yeah, you know, I, I I mentioned on a show a few weeks ago that we, we don't have massive cattle drives in the U.S. driving cattle across the country to the butcher shops and and then to the consumers. They get loaded on trucks to go to the feedlots, which takes diesel fuel. Then they get loaded from the feedlots onto uh, diesel trucks to uh, take them to the uh, processing plants. And then they take the processed meat uh, on diesel trucks to the grocery stores that consumers drive to get. All that's going to drive up the prices. Frankly, as you kind of go over the numbers, it's it's amazing that food prices have only gone up 35 and 50 percent when the oil costs have gone up 100 percent. So if, if people think the, the prices of gasoline as they drive around town and see those big signs uh, all over town, you know, broadcasting the higher gas prices are bad, wait till they see what happens to food prices as this continues. You know what I thought of, uh, Steve, when you said make it hurt? Like the John Cougar Mellencamp song, Hurt So Good. This is exactly what the European Union is doing to Russia. And they're going, yes, hurt me some more as they make deals going east 
when you've got China building out their Belt and Road Initiative, they're connecting. I mean, it's not just one straight line to Europe anymore. I mean, they're going up and down through Central Asia. They're connecting. I mean, it's not a direct route, but to Africa. They're doing a lot of business in Africa. And I think the Russians can see the future happening there. And the Russians are really working on focusing their efforts in building in, in the eastern part of the world now. They've looked away from the West. They said, okay, if you want to play these dirty tricks, fine, you figure out oil and gas on your own. Uh, Biden has not been very uh, uh, effective in talking with Saudi Arabia. MBS is going, yeah, I know you want more oil, but um, I'm not taking calls right now. So where's where is the world going to turn if they are effectively trying to cut off Russia? Russia says, fine, I'm moving east. And the Saudis say, no, we're, OPEC is, the cartel is basically saying, um, we'll think about pumping more oil. What does the world do if OPEC decides to, quote, stay neutral? But we know what neutral really means. If, if they produce less because the prices are going up, they, they may produce fewer barrels, but as, as you pointed out with what's going on with the, with the Russian oil, the, the prices go up, the profits go up. They'll be playing the same John Cooler Mellencamp song, Hurt Me Some More. Again, I'm not sure, if, I'm not sure if, uh, if, if Vladimir Putin has a song like Hail to the Chief, but maybe he'll start playing the, uh, some uh, John Cougar Mellencamp you know, for j- just to tweak uh, the, the West and, and their administrations. You, know, you, you bring up China and, and India and what they're doing in terms of, of expanding their, their role and, and Russia's role in that. We, we've been seeing that for a while, where the U.S. has sort of been retreating from, from various ports, parts of the world. China has been aggressively expanding their uh, connections in, in Africa and, and other parts of, of, of Southeast Asia and, and in South America, while the U.S. has sort of been retrenching. And when we look at, again, beyond the commodities like oil, the, the things that we use in making chips and, and other raw materials, they're expanding aggressively and, and making relationships with countries where they can get those assets while the United States is sort of retrenching and cutting back. And then again, you get, using again the supply and demand analogy, not only are you seeing Russia expanding their export of oil, the Biden administration has cut off the U.S. production of oil, stopping pipelines, stopping energy leases. So again, the, the commodity of oil, it doesn't matter whether it's it's Saudi oil, Russian oil, American oil. It's, it's oil is oil is oil. And when we are restricting the production that we are doing, it continues to drive up the price. So the embargo you know, is really a double-edged sword, and, and both edges are, are posed at the neck of the American consumer. From your standpoint, do you think Europe is going to – all along the way for this, it seems that there were certain things that Europe wouldn't do, like meaning gas initially or energy wasn't initially on the table. And if you think about it, they're saying gas is not on the table. That's not necessarily we could touch. Is it going to get to the point when they realize that, okay, the oil embargo is not doing what we want? We're not decimating the Russian economy. The ruble is not going to zero or whatever. Will they go to gas? I mean, I keep looking at this because at this point, to your point, these are not people who are looking at the laws of economics, if such a thing exists in that sense, or the laws of um, cause and effect or supply and demand. That's off the table. This seems to be ideological acts in the way that they're going, whether it's Europe or whether it's in the United States. And they don't necessarily seem to care about the pain that they're going to encounter for these ideological acts. 
So is this going to be a situation where gas also ends up on the table from your standpoint of this, or is just gas is, that's too much of a red line for those other countries? They're having a hard time getting certain countries on even for oil. Will they go to gas? I'm just curious from your take on this. I mean, are they that? Uh, I don't know. What, uh, um, are they that fanatical on keeping Ukraine in U.S. and Western orbit? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that the I think natural gas is another thing that we in the United States have restricted. You know, the the both the exploitation and exportation. So when they're looking at where they're going to get the natural gas to to, to replace some of their energy supplies. We're also in the United States, you know, putting the brakes on on our production here, which again drives up prices and and drives up the uh, the inability to to get access to those to those products. I, I do think that you may see the uh, European nations being a little bit more aggressive, simply because we're we're in the spring thaw and summer is approaching. So so the risk of of not having heating oil and people freezing to death in Europe is kind of diminishing just because of the weather change that, that we're having because of seasons. That may make them a little more aggressive in terms of, okay, now we can, can be more aggressive because we don't have people that are freezing to death. But the manufacturing still requires oil. The you know, transport of goods to, to grocery stores still requires oil. So you know, it, it may have a, a minuscule effect on they can be a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more vocal because you know, people aren't facing freezing to death in their homes. But I, I think that they are following... I think that while while Europe has been willing to go along with the U.S. and and the push to do something uh, to to try and confront Russia, I think they've been dragged kind of kicking and screaming to some point because you as you point out they've been slow to do the things that would have hurt them more, even though they've been giving lip service to yeah we're with you a hundred percent but we're not going to go with you on this or that because it might hurt our pocketbook. Steve, this morning we heard about how the Chinese are running economic modeling if they were to be, quote, attacked by, you know, economic warfare as, you know, most would consider sanctions, right? So they're running this modeling going, okay, what if the same sanctions were applied on us? I think it's pretty safe to assume that China is the world's manufacturing plant. How would, if we put the shoe on the other foot and we put these sanctions that are on Russia, we put them on China, how would you predict the Chinese would respond to the U.S.? I think, as, as you're pointing out, they're already anticipating what if. And, you know, they're, they're preparing for if we took provocative actions towards Taiwan, which they've, you know, they've been flying, you know, military aircraft closer to and, and over Taiwan to, to just kind of test not only Taiwan's uh, reaction, but also U.S. And, and international reaction. But they're, they're planning for what if, because they're learning from what's happening with Russia. And yeah, you have a very wealthy elite class in China that want to make sure that their yachts and their assets don't don't get taken away, as we've seen with the oligarchs in, in Russia. So they're, they're going to protect their assets first. The, the problem that China has is that outside the major manufacturing areas, outside the, the major cities, and, and again, there's eight to 10 million population cities that most people in the world have never even heard of in China. I mean, it's a country of 1.6, 1.7 billion people. And there are these massive cities that, that you know, would be huge by European or American standards that we don't even think about uh, when, when you're kind of going through the litany of major cities in China. And yet outside the major cities, China is essentially a third world country. And while it's not getting a lot of media attention around the world right now, what's happening in Shanghai with the severe quarantine and shutdown that has shut down Shanghai, 
several of their other major manufacturing centers have also been shut down because of, of what is seemingly a major COVID outbreak in China. And yet they're doing things like killing people's puppies and cats, you know, right in front of them, which would seem to indicate that it's something bigger or worse than COVID perhaps that they're dealing with. And, you know, whether it's some flea-borne illness like the plague, we don't know because you don't have access to information of what's actually going on inside China, like would be nice to have, because the reaction to what's going on there seems to be an overreaction if it was simply a COVID outbreak. But that's going to hamper the uh, the flow of goods, and, and we've seen the, the effect on the supply chain of, of just COVID shutting down factories in China, and all of a sudden you couldn't get basic goods that still have to be produced in China at this point because of the low cost, the, the large workforce. You're seeing a supply chain interruption, and it's going to get worse in the midst of all this other economic chaos. Steve, do you, do you ever foresee manufacturing coming back to America? Yeah, I see a lot of talk about it, but again, when the when the cost of production, when the uh, when the cost of raw materials is is high, it's it's hard to make that shift. Now we've we've seen a lot of shift in the last four or five years. In fact, you know, some of the businesses we work with have been moving manufacturing to Vietnam, to the Philippines, to to South Korea, to to uh, to Taiwan, to to Singapore. That is, that had already begun the process, but you know, the, the raw materials for things that we don't even think about are also being produced in China. Uh, back at Thanksgiving, I was trying to find Rice Krispies because I was going to make a, a dessert that my mom used to make. And, you know, so I'm trying to find Rice Krispies cereal, and, and there was none. And I'm saying, you know, how are we not having Rice Krispies? Clearly, that's made in the U.S. That's, that's not something that we're importing from China. And yet the, the answer is we finally got the answer a few months later was the boxes were made in China. Wow. Product. They just couldn't put them in the boxes to put them on the shelf. So when when you start looking at at what we get from China, it's not just, you know, what we find at Walmart and the and the t-shirts and the clothing because again, you're starting to see those made in other places, but the raw materials of what we use in just simple things like the boxes that go on the shelves of our grocery stores also come from places like that. Yeah, globalism. I mean, it. I think what people miss sometimes when they say, we're going to bring manufacturing back to the United States, is the issue of cost. If I can pay somebody $3 and I would have to pay them $15 in the United States, it doesn't make practical sense for me to build that in the United States. Here's the reason I bring that up is because I feel like even though I'm not an economist and I certainly didn't work for the U.S. Trade Representative. Never played one on TV. <laughs> and I've never played one on TV. <laughs> um, I bring this up because what what we've forgotten is that Russia, after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, is that Russia had to start all over. They had to restart their own. They had to become self-sustaining again. So they make their own butter. They make they have they have their own cattle. They have their own wheat products. They have they make their own clothes. They make they manufacture stuff in their own country again. So they've become rather insular. And I'm not going to say bulletproof to sanctions because we, I mean, we live in an interconnected world in the 21st century. However, it's not going to have the same intended consequences as you would have had during the Soviet Union, like, let's say, in 1987. It's not, it's not the same. Would you agree, Steve? Yeah, and I'd, I'd say that, you know, other, other countries with China, Russia, look at the Ukrainians. They are a tougher stock than Americans are right now. You know, we, you know, we, we, we curl up in the fetal position and 
whine and cry if, if, if things don't go our way. If the Netflix password doesn't work. Yeah, that's right. If, if my internet is slow today. So first of all, they're, they're of tougher stock. Also, as you mentioned, they had to, to, to restart. So they modernized their facilities. So their factories, in some cases, are, are more efficient and more modern. In the United States, again, when we transport oil or natural gas, we, we haven't been constructing new uh, pipelines. They've been blocked. We've we've got the, the processing of, of turning oil into gasoline. We haven't built new new processing plants that are that are more efficient and more energy efficient and less polluting in in decades because we can't get the permits or the the uh, oil companies can't make the investment because they may get shut off in an instant. You know, if, if the Biden administration immediately went back to the to the Trump policies, open the pipelines, open the uh, the oil leases, you would still have companies that would be reluctant to turn the switch on again, because unless they have like a 20-year guarantee that the government won't shut them down again, it's not working worth making the economic investment to, to put those dollars as capital investment if the government can turn off the light switch in a moment. So we continue to be our own worst enemies and then try to blame everybody else for, for what's going on. And, and when you look at the manufacturing processes, you know, we, we haven't built new steel manufacturing facilities. China has. So, so you're not going to be as efficient in your manufacturing processes when you're not upgrading what you're doing. And Russia has done that. And, and some of these other countries have, you know, the other thing to keep in mind as well is when you're looking at the cost of producing in the United States, and, and this is a good thing, you know, we don't want people just dumping, you know, excess, raw material waste into the into the local stream or, or polluting like crazy. So we have a higher cost of production and manufacturing in this country because, you know, we kind of like to drink clean water and, and breathe clean air. Those same restrictions are not in place in, in places like China where they're polluting like crazy. You walk down the street to some of their manufacturing cities and your glasses very quickly get a film over them from the pollution in the air that's being breathed in and they don't care. And a lot of the restrictions that are uh, seeking to be imposed on the U.S. in terms of our environmental uh, conditions don't apply to these countries that are polluting like crazy. So it's not just that they're polluting, it's that the cost of producing goods in a clean, environmentally friendly way are not being imposed on their products. So it's not just wages. You have to look at the at the raw material cost. You have to look at the overall manufacturing cost. That includes lack of pollution control there that we impose on ourselves here. And then you look at the labor laws, where you have you know, laws in effect here that say, oh, we're going to make you protect your employees and not subject them to dangerous, deadly manufacturing process. Those same rules don't apply to those countries. So it's not just the wage difference. It's the cost of employee difference. Steve, can I get you in the last two minutes, three minutes that we have with you to go into your predictions for what seems or what will most likely um, take place in the U.S. economically going forward? I mean, this seems to be a trade deficit that is expanding or ballooning, apparently. Um, we, the 1.4% recession number or def, uh, that just came out. And, you know, they're at the point where the, this doesn't necessarily seem to be stopping anytime soon. Um, Ukraine is saying they want victory now. The peace negotiations are basically off the table. And Biden has wrapped himself politically around the issue of Ukraine and bound himself to it as basically the only thing that he has going for him at this point. How do you foresee this in an economic sense going forward? Right. The, the $30 billion. <laughs> right. Making it rain. Making it rain. Make it rain. So how do you see this taking place economically going forward? I mean, they continue with the sanctions. 
They don't seem to be working, but they're definitely continuing with them. They're, and those sanctions mean embargoes and everything else and expanding the price of oil and, for that matter, gas. What effect is going to have here? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll continue my doom and gloom predictions. Things are going to get worse before they get better, uh, particularly for the American economy, because nothing is being changed that would improve the American economy. Um, so, you know, the inflation numbers, again, you know, politics drives so much. So a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle are looking to, yes, well, as we head to November, what do we need to do? You know, forgiving student loan debt is not going to improve the U.S. economy, lower inflation rates, you know, restore the, the economic vibrancy or, or our energy independence. So the things that they're trying to do uh, in Washington with the Biden administration are going are gonna to play to what, what will affect in their mind, the voting polls in November. But the inflation numbers are essentially already baked in and, again, will continue to get worse. Gas, gas prices are not going to suddenly plummet to, to $2 when you've got the international impact on oil prices, our own energy policies that are affecting gas prices and oil prices and food prices. So, first of all, the, the inflation numbers are not going to change and, and make it worse between now and November. Uh, the, the GDP numbers, as you mentioned, the, the um, trade deficit ballooned in the last quarter and it's going to get worse as as we we are not exporting as much because you know we have a staffing shortage of people that are working so there's all sorts of issues that that i think make it uh, uh make it pretty gloom and doom for consumers certainly for the next three to six months steve thank you for this man i really appreciate this analysis we got to get you back steve gill is an american conservative talk radio host based in nashville tennessee you guys are listening to fault lines thomas chan Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. All right, I want to make a correction for Steve Gill. Steve Gill is an attorney and CEO of Gill Media, a Nashville, Tennessee-based public affairs media and marketing company. He also serves as Director of Intergovernment Affairs for the U.S. Trade representative. That is a far better bio as opposed <laughs> to the one that was in our calendar. Very qualified individual to speak about all this sanction talk. Yeah, this this is his wheelhouse. He yes. knows his stuff. And yeah, give He's a case. smart man. And it was a, a great conversation. Gloomy. I know. I mean, in regards to the economic standpoint. Well, yeah, you can't, you can't just expect to bounce back, right? right? I mean, you can fall very quickly. Yeah. But getting up, you got some broken bones, mm-hmm. lacerations, you're not just going to get up and be like, well, I'm okay now. Well, That's our economy. That's what happened. Dabbing yourself in the genitals well, with your foreign <laughs> policy. I mean, for God's sake. Like I said, an economic union has decided to have an economic war that is having Stop more consequence. Stop yourself on it. in the yeah. face. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Stop it. It becomes that. And so instead of, like, he makes a really good point. Minerals, materials, fertilizer, um, oil, food, all of those things are being impacted. I mean, you're going to have various famines. Ukraine and Russia provided, what, 40% of grain or something like that to the, the rest world. of the world. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's gone up. I, I mean, know. gas, oil, that price has gone up. The amount you pay for food, that has gone up. Bacon, chicken, bread, et cetera, et cetera. 
we're getting hit with that stuff. The reason I say this, and the reason why I'm so, I guess, apoplectic over this, I grew up poor. We grew up poor. My mom, single parent, going from, you know, borrowing from Peter to PayPal, that was our life growing up. And if there was a parking ticket, that is a disaster. Right. If anything goes up from the standpoint of cost, it is a catastrophe. And so when you're going and food cost goes up, it's like, okay, I guess we're gonna have chicken today because you can't afford anything else. I guess we're gonna have this, can't afford anything. What about now? What about now? What about all of those people in this country now that is going to get bacon? It's like, oh God, look how much this costs. Oh God, I can't fill up my tank. Oh, we're getting hit with that I, I stuff. Mean, one pound of beef is hovering at almost six dollars. Think about in that this, in this area. That's astonishing. People have to pay for that stuff. And this is not a situation where people are doing exceedingly well and you haven't. My point is, you have a lot of people in this country that are not doing demonstratively well. And you've put those people under that much more economic stress for just the basics of life, getting to work, eating food, etc. This is not extravagant stuff. Oh, I'm getting lobster and lobster has gone up in price. No. It's not that. This is normal everyday folks. Yes. Normal stuff. I mean, I know it sounds, it sounds almost crazy to, to Okay, fine. I'm a penny pincher. I'm frugal. I grew up poor. Those are my values. Yes. I have. I came from poor immigrants to the U.S., victims of the secret war in Laos. I was the first born in the U.S. And I have these very, these immigrant values, yeah. right, of like conserve every dollar that you can. Every penny matters. Yeah. The former 98-cent box of Kraft mac and cheese, now up to $1.25, $1.30-ish yeah. where I live. I mean, that starts to add up. Yeah. So you're not just buying that by yourself when you're making groceries. Right. I mean. So 30 cents here, a dollar in some cases here for for beef. Beef shot way up. Obviously, the price to to raise cattle and all that stuff, as Steve outlined, and, and, you know, shipping, taking these, trucking these animals from here to there, Mm -hmm. that all costs money. And the costs have risen dramatically. Uh, But lucky for me... For me, I don't know about you all, but I'm a little bit of a walking dead doomsday prepper. Yeah. I've been prepping for this. Have you? Before Biden was elected. Uh-huh. Because I saw the writing on the wall. You knew this was going to... Oh, I knew. Something was going to pop up. Oh, filled up the freezers, bought the rice, bought the yeah, Just flour. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because this, this, was, this was bound to happen. I mean... With the way the country handled COVID, with how crazy the elections were, and I thought, yeah, next year, probably not going to be a very good year. Yeah. Honey, we should stock up. Yeah. Oh, we stocked up. This doesn't look good. Thankfully, we did because the price of pasta is up, rice is, everything is up. Yes. Yeah, so if you're spending $100 on groceries, you may be spending 150 now. Easily. Yeah. So we, we luckily stocked up on, you know, canned and dry goods that can last. And so we're we're not getting hit as bad as most people, but we were in the position to be able to buy in advance. Yeah. So on, many people are not. No, most people don't have what sixty percent of the public doesn't have five hundred dollars in the bank. Right, and they're, so they're it's one paycheck away from catastrophe. One paycheck away from catastrophe. If there's a car injury, if something happens, they cannot basically right. recover. And they don't have paid time off. Exactly, that's another problem that the United States just wow. There's just a multitude of things, and which is why. That led to Steve Gill's doom and gloom prediction for the next several years. And it's not going to be solved this November because, you know, sorry to say abortion, it doesn't matter where you fall on this. The abortion issue is not going to feed your family. It's not going to put gas in your tank. 
It's not going to get you to and from work. It's not going to get you paid time off. It's not going to get you health insurance that usually doesn't really cover that anyway. Yeah. Uh, but a multitude of issues. You cannot be voting on a single issue. I know we were saying that this is yeah. a, you know, and, abortion and, is going to be the, the yeah. motivating thing for a lot of people. But you know, like Bill Clinton said, it's the economy stupid. It's the economy stupid. It is the economy. And it's very, if I'm Trump or if I'm Republicans, my argument is, why are we doing this to the American population? The Biden administration is taking these policies that is causing inflation. That would be my argument. And I would point to Ukraine and say, why are we doing that? And I would explain in very clear detail how those policies are creating all sorts of havoc and excessive gas, food, et cetera. You're paying this much more. Biden is doing it. I, that argument makes itself like Steve because it said, hits in the wallet. Like Steve Gill said, he said the talking point of paying off student debt, it sounds great on a campaign. Yes. But that does not change our economy. That does not help you pay for gas and fill up your tank. That does not feed your six-year-old. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. Definitely get rid those of those matter. Get rid of student debt. I'm with But that's that. not going to affect inflation. Right. <laughs> right. That's but not in, affect in that the at all. immediate, in the in, Americans live in the now. Yes. Because we can't afford to live tomorrow or the next day. We have to live right now. And unfortunately, you know, talking points like student debt. Sounds like. It sounds great, but it doesn't feed you today. It doesn't put food on your table today. Fact is, the economy, like this, the economy is stupid. It's the economy stupid. And whatever the abortion debate becomes, I strongly suspect that the economy one or the economic one, especially if that's made, like if it's not, if it's not, everybody's just fighting over abortion. If the argument becomes these events in Ukraine are hitting you directly in your wallet, if it becomes that, the abortion thing is going to matter less. Why? Mark my words. Because it's not a situation where the Supreme Court got rid of abortion across the United States, even if they come out with that. Right. There are going to be certain state, states that state have it. State. Right. State by state. Um, and which is horrendous because there are going to be a lot of poor women who are not going to be able to get their abortion. But from the economic standpoint, is that going to be enough for those people to turn around and say the abortion thing is more important than me being able to feed my family or me being able to have money in my wallet and paycheck and being able to pursue my life? I don't think it is. I think the economy tends to take far more take of people's, yeah, under normal circumstances, yeah. Can I feed myself? The abortion, yes, all things been equal. If I screw up and have, I get that. I need money in my wallet. I need to pay for my kid. I need to pay for my house. Right. I need the to pay for my bills. Gets a lot of space yes. in most people's heads. Oh, yes. And their pocketbook, obviously. It's an issue it's, of need. It lives in there. Yeah. Yeah. So let's do this. Let's get into the headlines. Great conversation um, with Steve. Really good conversation. Thank you for bringing him on, Manila. But in the news. In national news, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito has canceled an upcoming speaking appearance at the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals Judicial Conference, gathering a New Orleans-based federal appeals court judges, gathering of, I'm sorry, New Orleans-based federal appeals court judges and district court judges from Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. The matter was reported by Reuters and confirmed by Patricia McCabe, the spokesperson for the high court. Quote, we cannot allow our decisions to be affected by any extraneous influences such as concern about the public's reaction to our work. Unquote. Alito wrote in his draft opinion leaked earlier this week. <laughs> so he's in hiding. <laughs> That's great. U.S. Senator Rand Paul said during the congressional hearing that new disinformation governance board established by Biden administration cannot be trusted at all because the federal government is the biggest propagator of disinformation in the history of the world. <gasps> oh, my God. He said the truth. He said the truth. Quote, he said the quiet part out loud. He said the quiet part out loud. Water, please. Um, quote, I think you got no idea what disinformation is, and I don't think the government is capable of it. Unquote. Paul told Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas during a hearing on Wednesday. Quote, 
Do you know who the greatest propagator of disinformation in the history of the world is? The U.S. government, unquote. Paul supported this point by highlighting the Pentagon Papers and former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara's role in involving the U.S. United States in the Vietnam War, President Ronald Reagan lying during the Iran-Contra affair, and President George Bush, former President George W., lying about the existence of weapons of mass destruction to justify the invasion in Iraq. I would go one more. Trump and Russia and an investigation that took place three years with the political actors screaming about it to the hilt, and all of it was wrong. All of it was a conspiracy theory. Would the Disinformation Governance Board have debunked any of that? And the answer, of course, is no. They would have solidified the various specific narratives and those lies that were coming out of the government. For the last two months, NBC News owned up to the fact that the U.S. government has been flagrantly and voluminously lying. Would the disinformation board have stopped and gut the disinformation that has been coming out of the government that admitted disinformation that is coming out of the government? That answer, of course, that everybody knows is no. And so again, I ask, you've eliminated other sources of information. You've already done that. You've been able to get rid of RT Sputnik in Europe. You've been able to eliminate RT here. Not exactly, but more or less. And you've been using social media to do an end run around the First Amendment. Okay, you did that. What is the point of this board? You're not going to push down disinformation from the government. So what are you doing? Your objective is to let lies go by the government, but try to debunk other stuff that considering it's lies from the government, anybody saying something against those lies in order to point out that those are lies, that is most likely what the disinformation board is going to call disinformation. It is an inversion of reality, using the government to basically do so. Those tech companies and everything else are probably going to organize around that particular information with exactly what I think that board is there for. To have those tech companies basically defer, defer to that board on what they consider to be true or false and the information that they basically allow. This is an end run around the First Amendment because of the way our commons have been added to these electronic platforms. Why do you think there's so much hysteria around Elon Musk? What could be more trivial than Twitter? Look at the name even, a little bird. And all of these people are basically freaking out because his thought is, hey, let's have this to be a free speech platform up into the limits of the First Amendment. Oh my God, we can't allow that. We can't allow that. We can't allow that. We can't allow free speech in this country. Are you insane? It gets across what Twitter has been doing and what Twitter has been used for in the elimination of various sources of information and opinions that liberals, liberals, and the political space didn't necessarily like. And the moment that Elon Musk is like, yeah, I don't like you guys doing that. I want to kind of have that as something that could be, you know, an actual social media platform for people to be able to talk. Hysteria. Hysteria. Open letters saying people should abandon Twitter. People writing these letters like, I'm going to Canada and Trump gets elected. But now liberals are doing this to Twitter. You guys are embarrassing. And yeah, it's a repudiation of everything that is meant under this notion of a First Amendment. Don't believe in it. Stop pretending like you do. In international news, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky really want a war with Russia. Otherwise, he wouldn't have negotiated, if he would have negotiated, long before the Kremlin special military operation started, according to ex-president of Brazil and hopefully future president of Brazil and candidate in the new election, Lula da Silva. In an interview with Time magazine published on Wednesday, Lula, as he's most commonly known, discussed a wide range of home country, wide range of his home countries and global problems, including the ongoing Ukraine crisis. Quote, he did want war. If he didn't want war, he would have negotiated a little more. 
That's it. Unquote. Lula said. And complicated, logical, practical, and of course, true. If he didn't want a war, you would have negotiated. The U.S. has provided intelligence that aims at assisting Ukrainians in targeting and killing several Russian generals in action in the ongoing special military operation in Ukraine, the New York Times reported on Wednesday, citing U.S. officials' claims. According to the report, as Ukrainian authorities claim to have killed at least 12 generals or Russian generals, military analysts have reported been baffled by this unexpectedly high number. But the United States officials supposedly declined to specify the number of high-ranking officials they've allegedly killed. Well, the ghosts of Kiev killed 10,000 Russian planes on a tank of gas. So yeah, of course, this is going to be completely and entirely true. There's no way to know it. The key point of the story, though, is that U.S. intelligence is being used to kill Russian generals. If this is not a proxy war, I don't know what it is. By definition, we are given weapons, materials, training, money, everything that we can to put money into the hands of Ukrainian children and Ukrainian old men to send them out there to either get killed or to kill Russians. How is that not a proxy conflict? And is that really what you want your country to be doing? And this is going to be another $33 billion that they're trying to basically send to a losing war. You should listen to or read the reports that are coming out, people who are on the ground and embedded in the Ukrainian military, reports from French um, journalists and otherwise. This is it's just astonishing. That's all. The Chinese government ran a comprehensive stress test drill late February and early March to model what impact Western sanctions similar to those imposed against Russia will have on its economy. The Guardian has reported, citing a source with knowledge of the exercise. The test reportedly involved the key government agencies, including bank regulators and international trade bodies, with officials tasked with formulating emergency measures to be taken if restrictions were imposed. Quote, those involved in this exercise use exercise use how Russia was treated as a baseline for China's own policy response should it be treated the same fashion by the West. The stress test involves a range of methodology, including modeling, the source indicator. In tech news, PayPal has released nearly $10,000 it sees from alternative media outlets Consortium Media, the site's editor-in-chief has said, allowing it to withdraw its funds after stating that they could be held for up to six months without explanation or reason. CN editor Joe Loria noted that the reversal on Wednesday, writing that the U.S. payment company had informed the site its funds were, quote, eligible for withdrawal, unquote, the night prior, days after freezing its $9,348 balance over unspecified, quote, risk exposure, unquote, associated with the account. Quote, Consortium News immediately withdrew the funds, Loria said, adding that PayPal gave no reason for its reversal as it had given no reason for its initial action. That should not be allowed. If PayPal is going to be an organization like that, that is going to deal with real money, same thing is true for Google, same thing is true for any of these companies where people can make profit off of them, you should not be able to steal people's funds. I don't care what is going on in this situation, especially in this kind of unspecified, random way. That is outlandish. That is outlandish. Let's go in business news. Slovakia warned on Wednesday that it would not be able to agree to European Commission's proposal for a ban on Russian oil and has called for more time to find alternative fuel suppliers. The proposed embargo is part of the latest Ukraine-related sanctions against Moscow that would see crude imports from Russia phased out within six months, we'll see, and refined products by the end of the year. An exemption was drafted for Slovakia and Hungary, which are heavily dependent on Russia, giving them until the end of 2023 to comply. If it's given them 2023 to comply, that is not 2022, but okay, fair enough. This day in history, in 1904, Cy Young pitches the first perfect game 
in modern league baseball. Wow. In 1921, Chanel No. 5 perfume is introduced. In 1934, the first Three Stooges film is released. In 1949, the Council of Europe is founded. In 1955, West Germany regains full sovereignty after World War II. In 1980, the British Special Air Service, SAS, terminate the Iran embassy siege in London. You guys are listening to Faultlines. Thomas, Chan, those are your headlines. All right. So we are going to take calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. We will be back in a moment. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with my awesome co-host, Manila Chan. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. We have Sanchez from Southern California. It never rains in Southern California. What's going on, Sanchez? Happy Cinco de Mayo, buddy. Well, a most gruvacious Cinco de Mayo to the both of you as well. Yeah, I'm waving back at you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You guys were talking uh, the previous hour about a couple of things that I wanted to uh, respond to you guys about. Um, First of all, you mentioned Star Trek. And I've got some very groovy Star Trek uh, uh, trivia for you. Remember Star Trek Deep Space Nine? Favorite series. No. It became my favorite series. Oh, that became my favorite series. What do ethical people do? The peak of humanity in regards to morality and ethics, et cetera. What do they do in the face of war? Oh, that is so good. That is so good. The series was astonishingly good. Yes. My answer is yes. That was, that was my favorite uh, of all the Star Trek series. But for another reason, you remember Jake Sisko, uh, uh, Captain Sisko's? Yeah, absolutely. He was, yeah, he was played by Sirach Lofton. I used to know his mom and dad. I was there the day that they brought him home from the hospital, and I knew him up until the age of five. And really? One smart kid. Yeah, seriously. And I knew he was going to be special. I just knew it just by his look. He was a bright kid when he was small, and he turned out, look, he, he played the, the, the son of uh, Captain Sisko. That was one of the best relationships in Star Trek. Don't get me wrong, Kirk Spock, all of that stuff is good. But there was something special about the way that he loved his son and the way that that was kind of explored as they went through the series. He was just an amazing dad on top of being a captain. I love that. I love that. You that, only get these stories from people in Southern California. like I know, right? Who lives there and right. like near Hollywood. Right. And you just, you have these random stories. I, I lived right up the block from them. And the, what, what made Star Trek Deep Space Nine so special was, again, that father-son relationship that you don't often see in television series. It's always a fatherless child and, and, you know, that sort of a thing. So that's another thing that made it special. But I love the series anyway. It just totally rocked. So that's my Star Trek uh, uh, trivia for you today. I wanted to talk to you guys about Lula da Silva because you were mentioning him in the previous hour. Now, he... He's been saying a couple of things. He was, first of all, he was saying that Zelensky is equally to blame for the current war in Ukraine. But that the other thing uh, that is really treading on dangerous territory is that he is proposing a new currency. I saw that. Latin America. I saw that. I saw that. 
I mean, when people start proposing currencies, Gaddafi stuff starts coming out, right? I mean, we know for the, you know, Lula got put in prison with U.S. assistance in that cup. When we were covering that story, there was all sorts of stuff that was coming in from the CIA. There were things that were basically being said in Brazil that kind of indicated that the U.S. was involved in giving information or assisting in the prosecution of Lula. And, of course, that stuff has been thrown out as being somewhat farcical because they basically railroaded the guy in order to get the guy locked up to prevent um, him from taking office, which he would have taken, which in which Bolsonaro eventually gets the spot. And so the fact that he's out, he's politically able to run, he's most likely to win. And now he's basically saying, you know, a dominant presence, right? Maybe we should have a currency. And that's going to even weaken the dollar even further. So as you just said, Muammar Gaddafi was promoting the same thing, the gold dinar for the African nations. And look what happened to him. Yeah, we're, we're pretty mad at El Salvador for accepting Bitcoin as legal tender there, too. So El Salvador, who was it? Venezuela? There were three. Uh, there's going to be a conference here in Los Angeles that Biden's proposing with a bunch of uh, Latin American nations, except Venezuela uh, is not being invited and neither is uh, Nicaragua. I suspect Venezuela wouldn't come even if he was invited. They tried to murder Maduro, and then they kind of get the gas after. I'm going to propose sending Sanchez out there to be our correspondent for the day. (laughs) I know, right? Um, Sanchez, thanks, my man. I appreciate this call. And love the Jake Sisko trivia. Absolutely. I'm a sucker for Star Trek. They know on the show, it's like, don't bring up Star Trek. He's going to glow. Uh, But let's go to the next one. Mark in New York. Mark, what's going on, my man? Hi, good morning. I'm laughing because uh, I like your style. I'm also a big Star Trek fan. Oh, are you? (laughs) Oh, nice. So many Trekkies (laughs) listening to this show. I'm like, as soon as you guys start talking about it, my brain's like wandering off like, oh, the walls are blue. Are you looking forward to Strange New Worlds that's coming out today? Yeah, both. Oh, God, I'll try to say both as shit. <laughs> Notice how people glow when they talk about it. I, I'm but noticing. Under, but understand why. It's this notion that Earth got itself together, got its nonsense, got its wars, got its poverty, got it together and decided to go too out into the of universe. Too for me. I'm too it, founded. I like documentaries. I like things I that I love that like, stuff. Oh, and history. By the same token, I have this clear conception of what this planet could be. And in this very specific situation, we're not there yet, but I'm could cynical. we get there? Yes. I'm like, nah, cynical. Look, it's one of two things. Either we're going to get our stuff together or we're going to end up destroying ourselves, one or the other. I do believe in an optimistic future, despite my cynicism about how we are now. Um, Mark, but I'm sorry. Like you said, focus, focus. No, no, you, did, you didn't digress at all. That is exactly my thoughts as well. I am a documentary person as well. Miller, I hear you on that. But if you really follow Starter, you'll see that it's about, yes, Earth getting itself together. Possibilities of the future and the promise of discovery for the interest of do no harm, which is what seems to be in a very odd and strange way, but not so strange. But China is doing Building relationships that are, you know, Change of, of goods and, and goodwill, but I'm not going to interrupt your society. In other words, that's the Star Trek mission. The mission to, what is it again, Jamal? To not interfere, to disrupt the civilization which you discover. Right, non-interference. That basically, you can, meaning we can trade and everything else, but if that country has, or that world hasn't gotten to a certain point, can't touch it, can't deal with it, and you can't interfere with the development of another species. Prime directive. Um, and that's, and look, that's complicated. 
Like that's not a that's not an easy thing. There's a war. There's a medical issue that's affecting a civilization. Do you help? You have the technology to do it. Do you help with the electric civilization die out? Or in situ- it it creates all sorts of crisis in regards to how you as a society, as these kind of ethical human beings in the way that you pursue, you know, ethical justice, et cetera, honest, the works. And you're engaging with these things that are not necessarily that way. How do you behave? And you're not, you're not the simple arbiter of what is. Exactly. In other words, so it's a beautiful uh, written um, series. And I kudos to the, to the writer because people really understand it in this in-depth way. It is a really... Humanitarian, or not even humanitarian, it's a real interesting way of getting along in the world to, to challenge your own views and how do you come to grips with people who have very different views without, again, just annihilating because yours is the right way and the only way. But I wanted to bring up the point of the globalism that you happen to mention in talking with your earlier guest with respect to trade, uh, but also with respect to we get the government we get. And that's where I'm going to sum it up with this. Basic point being, that when, uh, when we talk about globalism, since the typo documents, the, uh, the post document discovery, we've been in a global empire since then. But, you know, we traded in slaves. <laughs> we took other people's land. We've been overthrowing governments in South America for the longest in the interest of what? The rich or the particular nation or the lords saying, well, you will have, you will own nothing. But you will do my bidding, I'll recruit you into war, and you'll go and march and take that man's land over there. Okay? So we just are beginning our thing, but many of us don't because, again, we, are, we live in a nine-to-five world. No, you said the urgency of now. If we only deal in the now, and I mean us who are on the ground, not because the, there's think tanks, there's theorists, there's, you know, the Rand Corporation, there's they're great ideas. We have the dumbest political class you can imagine. Really do. We have a very dumb political who are leading us into silliness in terms of the economics and the possibility of nuclear war. I don't want to do doomsday analysis, but it is the conglomerate of all of this coming together that is, is, is sad. I wrote to my elected officials, two of them the other day, of which I challenged them to stop this madness. And, of course, when you write to them, they're going to say, do you want my newsletter? <laughs> you want to donate to my campaign? Yes. So disconnected from the average person. And we, in turn, do our mind on the roulette wheel or whatever, come home and we cover the television, and then they want to propagate to what you need to know. It's important to construct it. I, I want to conclude with this one last thing. When I talked about that 40-page, or it was mentioned about that 40-page booklet. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. The thing, in that 40 page were like 40 different people who you needed to know. And I'm saying, if you don't take the time to read, are we so debased in society? And I know it's hard. I grew up poor, too. I know what that's about. But if you don't read and commit to it, this is the government you will get. So we allow these people to dumb us down to a point where we're not thinking. And if we had any sense of what a sentient being would be, you get the tricky thought there, um, then we might say, hey, I can't just allow this. To I have a responsibility to my children, to my family, to engage and educate and inform myself as to what is necessary. So we can challenge where we are at this very because we're, as I said the other day, we're about to have how butts handed to us. 
And it's not because we need to fight. We need to recognize that China has a right to exist. Russia has a right. South America has a right to exist. That's where I'm going. Mark, what it is is we have elected a whole bunch of Pied Pipers and they are walking us off a cliff and we are just listening to the music from their flute and just going, going with, with it. it. Yep. And we're just piling off the cliff. Uh, thank you so much for that call, Absolutely, Mark. Mark. We got to well, go to our buddy. Oh. Yeah. Well, we'll bring you back, Tarif, at 930 because we have a guest that's on the line. Um, but I would say this. Oh, Tarif is there, everybody. So Yeah, he's yes, there. Tarif, call us back. 945. We'll Promise take you, Tarif. we missed you yesterday. Yeah, because we wanted to get to The our, Rumblers yes. missed you yesterday, Tarif. So we'll get back to you. Um, look, and Mark, 1,000% agree with you just to close it. Um, look, in my head, a lot of these things, we're billiard balls. I know people think they think. I know they think they're rational and everything else. But all things being equal, people flow with environmental circumstances. And it usually takes environmental circumstances to get so monstrously bad where the typical way of life is no longer acceptable. Meaning it is more painful um, to live as opposed to take the pain of changing the events. That's where we are, even in Star Trek. What did they went through? A third world war? environmental collapse. It was only at that point where we were on the brink of disaster where people change. We're no longer, we're, that's where we're going. Look, you guys are listening to the Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. We're going to get into some Ukraine conversation about what's going on on the ground. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined by my co-host Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video, and for that matter, smash that rumble button. If you guys want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. We'll be taking your calls at 945. Your engagement helps make us what we are. So definitely don't be shy about calling. And I want to thank all of our last callers. But let's do this. Let's get into the news. The issue with Ukraine, and we're going to have a conversation about that with our next guest, Nebroja Malik. Um, Nebroja Malik is a Serbian-American journalist, blogger, translator, who wrote a regular column for the antiwar.com from 2000 to 2015 as in now a senior writer at RT. Nebroja, how you doing this morning? You doing all right? Good morning, Jamal. I'm doing all right. How are you? So far, so Neb. good. Better that you are with us. And yeah, let's just go with Neb. I like Neb. Um, I wanted to get into some of the conversations about what's taking place on the ground in Ukraine. It seems that Russia has opened up a massive attack last night. And this is after the West has said, oh, Russia is going to run out of missiles and equipment, etc. Then there's news coming out of the West. Russia is going to go into a wartime footing because they're losing so poorly. And I was going through some of the reports last night and a French journalist that's embedded into... Um, the Ukrainian military is talking about the sorry state of that military and how they're running out of men and materials, how these guys are walking to certain locations as opposed to having military vehicles to get them from point A to point B. I mean, they were even noticing that some of the people who were leading some of these brigades were like 20 years old, leading men who were in their late 40s. Because, again, he's like, I haven't even finished my training yet. And this is supposed to be ran by somebody with two to three traits higher than me. And the brigade is supposed to be three times larger, but they're still out there fighting nonetheless. This doesn't sound like a situation of these guys are winning. I'm even hearing about larger encirclements that are taking place in multiple areas of the East with the Russian military moving slowly 
but moving, nonetheless, taking villages. What is the reality on the ground so far? And maybe the question is, what is the latest news going on in the Ukrainian conflict? I'm familiar with the report you just cited. Yes, it's the AFP, it's the AFP report from a day or two ago that was describing a, a Ukrainian, huh, they were calling it a brigade. It's no more than a reinforced company at this point uh, that marched for uh, 12 miles, I think, to Svetlogorsk. And uh, it, it, was, it paints a really grim picture of, of um, things on the front that is really sort of at odds with all of this other propaganda in the mainstream media. And it's, it's real strange because AFP has been carrying water for the government in Kiev pretty reliably for the past several months. So if, if even they are admitting that things are this bad, things must be really bad. Uh, from the maps and the reports um, and the telegram channels and everything else that I'm monitoring, I'm getting an image of uh, um, things getting pretty heated last night, um, well, our night, uh, their morning, I guess. Um, the time difference you got to factor in, but uh, things got uh, pretty hot and heavy on the on that front line, um, as well as deep inside Ukraine and all of these supply dumps and uh, electrical power stations that are uh, enabling uh, railway traffic, because uh, the Russian military is now uh, not trying to destroy the rails itself, but um, the knock out the power stations so that the trains with all of this fancy weaponry coming in from the West can't get in. And the Russian defense ministry has very bluntly told, um, I was wondering what was behind that statement, uh, when Defense Minister Shoigu, who is definitely not dead, as it's been rumored uh, <laughs> in, in Ukrainian media, he basically said, you know, we're, we're letting our NATO, quote, partners know that any of their transport uh, that crosses into Ukraine is a legitimate target. And I'm like, why is he warning NATO about their transports? They're not sending vehicles over. They have trains. Oh, wait. No, they don't anymore because the, most of the train traffic has been knocked out with these power stations. Um, but on the front line itself, on the line of battle, there are multiple, multiple reports of Russian breakthroughs in the north. There's one in the east. There's one in the south. Um, you know, people are... A lot of armchair strategists are expecting, you know, some sort of, you know, 24-hour or 48-hour victory. I don't think things are happening like this. This is very um, methodical warfare. Artillery is doing the bulk of the work. Um, and it's, it's, it's not pretty. War never is. People who think it is are in the wrong profession uh, and, are, and or are lying to people. But from what I can see, it it really appears that the bulk of the Ukrainian troops facing Donbass, the main body, the, the most highly trained, uh, best equipped, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are actually in terrible shape logistically. They're running, they are running out of supplies. Uh, they have very few prospects of reinforcements, what with their supply lines basically being under artillery fire and now cut off one by one. And they really have no strategic prospects of, I won't even say winning. I mean, winning was not an option a month ago. No. They don't have a prospect of making, out of, making it out of this alive unless they can negotiate some, some kind of surrender. It, that's what's looking like to me, um, just, just looking at these most recent reports. Neb, I want to go back to something. I mean, I know we're, we're laughing and joking at the idea that, that Shoigu was dead somehow. <laughs> 
um, which we know is not true. But the Ukrainians are saying that there have been like 12 high-ranking Russian military officials that have been, I don't know, shot dead or, you know, whatever. that they Killed with U.S. assistance given intelligence. Right, from intelligence. But then when, when intelligence, the intelligence community is asked about it, as direct quotes by the press here, they're like, oh, um, can't really confirm, can't. Eh. So they don't want to say, yes, that's true, but they don't want to say no either because, I don't know, Nina Jankowitz is going to sail in and be like, stop. <laughs> right. That's not true. You She's can't gonna say that. Sing it in She's going to sing through, post, right? stop. <laughs> um, but there's a little bit of that I want to touch on as well as the new news coming out of Brazil with Lula making his reappearance and he wants to, you know, Re- regain his seat as uh, the leader of Brazil, mm-hmm. probably the biggest economy in South America, the biggest country physically for sure. Um, but him tacitly supporting the Russian side, he didn't exactly say, but he definitely said that, you know, hey, this is not winnable. The Russians have a point. The U.S. kind of interfered over there. He would know. Uh, Can you touch on those two things? Well, yes. So the funny thing about um, I don't I don't necessarily think that the American press is is, um, uh, you know, going around in fear of the show tunes dictator uh, just yet. But I do. (laughs) Is that what we'll call her? The show Show tunes dictator? (laughs) Might as well. I saw it somewhere online. It's it's not necessarily my phrase, but uh, I'll, I'll use it. Uh, but I think the, this whole story, when you when you when you talk about claims made by the Ukrainian government and you, and the media over there that are outlandish, I mean, to the point like last week, BBC was like the ghost of Kiev was actually real and he died in battle, and then the Ukrainian military, like within hours, was like, actually, yeah, BBC, nice try, but no, no, it was never real. We made him up. Like when the Ukrainian military itself is like, no, we made him up, but that, but that's a good thing actually, and all all the you know media in the West are like, yes, it's a good thing actually. It, it was it was really shameful to watch this whole um, you know orgy of group thing here, but w- when it comes to this intelligence report, like you've you've this is why when you know the New York Times or people like that say we've confirmed this, I don't believe them anymore because. They never recanted the fake story on Russia bounties in Afghanistan. That was false. That was fake. That was fake all along. Um, they, they keep talking about how, you know, U.S. intelligence led Ukrainians to shoot down these, these you know, plane loads of Russian paratroopers. There's never been any evidence these planes were ever shot down. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a fairy tale, just like the ghost of Kiev. Um, you know, and if these things were true then the U.S. government would literally be party to the war. Like, if you provide intelligence support, like when the U.S. provided intelligence support and resupply support to Saudi Arabia and its coalition during the war in Yemen, there were lawmakers objecting that this makes the U.S. party to the war and the mass murder of Yemenis for years. This has been going on since 2015. And yet, and there were even resolutions, you know, trying to pull the U.S. back out of this. Nobody's objecting to the U.S. government doing the exact same thing with Ukraine now. And that's very telling, first of all. But secondly, yeah, I mean, it absolutely makes the U.S. party to the war. And then, of course, you know, it would make U.S. officials and U.S. spies and all this other, you know, all these other people 
and institutions legitimate targets. And this is madness. Nobody wants this. The U.S. government doesn't want this. They would like to pretend that you know, the U.S. government is perfectly neutral and totally supporting Ukraine. And this is not a proxy war. And, you know, if if there's any sort of consequences for this, that's that's unacceptable and blah, blah, blah. So we can do whatever we want to you, but you can't defend yourself because that would be evil. That's a, that's a very typical approach. Well, it's also a little bit more insidious than that. I mean, if you think about it, they're using brinksmanship as a means to basically not get consequences for being involved in a war like this. All of it, even the mercenaries. Like Russia doesn't call troops from Canada or troops. I mean, there's an expectation or there's, there's a rumor. I'll, I'll call it a rumor. I don't know if it's true. That a Canadian general has basically been captured. Unconfirmed. Unconfirmed reports. rumor. Right. Unconfirmed, unconfirmed. reports. Yeah, let's call it that. Unconfirmed reports. On the news. Fair enough. Fair enough. Unconfirmed, unconfirmed reports, reports, quote unquote. Um, that a Canadian general has basically been caught and is in Russia now. I mean, you have all of these people from all of these foreign countries. We know that they're trainers on the ground. But these people are called mercenaries because the last thing you want to do is call them enemy combatants from other countries because of what that means. It's like and even the report that came out, I think it was another French report saying that there were Americans on the ground directing the war. Then again, nobody wants to acknowledge that because of the ramifications of that. You're using brinksmanship as a way of basically saying it's like, look, this is World War Three if you acknowledge this. And so we're not going to acknowledge it. Neither side. And because neither side is going to acknowledge, the U.S. can dump all of the weapons, all of the money. You can have NATO nations dump all of the weapons, all of this money into it. And Russia cannot necessarily respond outside of the borders of Ukraine for what it means in a larger sense. By the same token, let's be very clear. If you are given intelligence in order to kill Russian generals, if you are putting in weapons in order to kill Russians, if you are setting up and creating drones and whatnot to kill Russians, then you are part of that conflict. It's a proxy war. It is. And, and what's more to it, U.S. officials uh, in, you know, rare attacks of honesty are actually admitting it. You know, you've got generals, you've got lawmakers, you've got you've got the president himself. You know, they, they're, they're admitting this. So it's it, and then and then they have their you know handlers walk it back later. Oh, that's not what they really meant. Uh, we're, we're used to this at this point. I mean, you know, living in the States, you've got to be a rationalizing creature or else you'd go insane. Um, but yeah, this is, you know, this, this is how things function, unfortunately. I, I got to share with you some of the, the people in the Rumble chat room are recommending we call her Scary Poppins. Oh, I like or, that. I like that. Or Mary Stoppins. Oh, I like Scary Poppins. Scary Poppins is sexy. I like that. Scary Poppins. I like Instead that. Instead of... Minister, Minister of Truth. <laughs> yeah, right. Minister, Mistress, Mistress Min- of Truth. Mistress of Truth. Um, one more thing with this. How is Russia going to respond to this? It, and I guess I'm not going to ask how. Russia's response is basically saying, okay, fair enough. You can put those weapons in, but those weapons are not going to get to the battlefield. So last night, it seemed like, and correct me if I'm wrong, they opened up a massive slew of missile attacks on, let's say, railroads and things, or let's say the transportation system of the country itself in order to prevent those things from getting from point A to point B. Is that correct for yesterday? Well, I mean, you can believe the videos that show these missiles, you know, uh, doing their work all over eastern, uh, western Ukraine, or you can believe the think tanks and the so-called open and open source intelligence who claim that Russia ran out of missiles two months ago. Right. <laughs> um, right so right. you know, I mean, depending on who you believe, um, but yeah, I mean, again, the videos that I saw and and the aftermath um, of the damage shows that this, you know, transport transport infrastructure for delivery of weapons has absolutely been targeted. And 
if not destroyed quite yet, very seriously damaged. And Russians have been, I mean, I know people are saying that you know Russia has indiscriminately bombed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is simply not true. But um, I've I've actually seen Russian activists uh, who support the war criticizing the military for not being aggressive enough in going yes. after this infrastructure at this point, because they're saying, look, you know, the West has declared proxy war on us. They're sending all of these weapons in. We must make sure that they never make it to the front. If you don't make sure that these weapons never arrive, you're responsible for whichever one of our boys gets killed. That's that's what they're arguing. I'm just you know translating their argument here. So, you know, this is a situation in which the Russian military faces finds itself in that it's facing criticism domestically for not being aggressive enough. Now, for what Manila asked about Lula, yeah. it's a very interesting situation. I saw that interview yesterday and I was going, oh dear, because, um, I mean, Lula can't help himself but be honest. Think of him what you will, but he he does tend to speak his mind and his heart. And in this particular interview, he literally said, look, you know, uh, you, you, you talk about this being, you know, Russians are entirely to blame for this, but you know what about Zelensky? He could have he could have pledged neutrality at any point. He could have and should have negotiated at any point. And instead, here you are encouraging him. You know this is Biden's fault. He he's given written Zelensky a blank check, um, and you know, instead of you know trying to negotiate for peace, and he basically said, look, you know you're pre- painting this as a black and white situation, whereas you're stoking the fires of war. This is irresponsible. And here am I reading this, going, oh dear, because. Bolsonaro, who's currently in power, um, has basically said, you know, I'm not getting involved in this Western war against Russia. This is none of our business. And he was absolutely pilloried in the Western press for this. Well, yeah, he's the B in BRICS. So, right. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> right, I mean, right. you know, obviously, so th- there's this push to replace him. You know, there's been these repeated pushes to replace him because he's been called the Trump of the tropics and all this stuff. And so, you know, the, 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 the American establishment that wanted Trump out wants Bolsonaro out just as well. But the problem is now you've got, you know, the guy who's polling 14 points ahead of Bolsonaro is saying these things. And, and I, I can imagine people in Langley going, oh, we're going to need another coup in Brazil, oh, aren't damn we? Damn it. Got to do it again. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, Lula was sent to prison on these trumped up, you know, false corruption charges that the Brazilian judiciary eventually admitted were bogus. And his successor, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached on a right. completely bogus. I mean, this was, you know, this is what paved the way. Bolsonaro wasn't involved in this, but uh, the person who took over from Rousseff um, was so corrupt and so inept that it was it, Bolsonaro was a shoe in even after they tried to assassinate him. I think he got stabbed at a rally or something. I mean, the, Brazilian politics are just a whole different level than the U.S. politics, and I hope it never descends to that in the U.S., but wow. Trump here stateside and Trump of the tropics, Bolsonaro, are not the problem themselves. They are the symptom of the problems that led up to them. So if anyone had problems with those men taking power, take a look at how we got there. That is that is the, the big problem. Right. And as the previous guest was mentioning, I, I heard the tail end of that. You know, it's it's one of those you you think people are rational creatures and reason through things. They don't. No. That's that's a, I'm sorry, but that's just not true. We rationalize things after the fact and we're very good at it. 
and we can persuade ourselves that everything is fine. And as uh, Jamal was himself was mentioning, this is this is you know this is literally from the Declaration of Independence. People are predisposed to suffer, while suffering is sufferable, uh, un until something you know pushes them over the edge. I'm obviously paraphrasing, but you know they would rather suffer things than change the forms that they're accustomed to until. And there comes the phrase, the long train of abuses and usurpations comes into play. So, yeah, obviously, I mean, the, 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 the fact that the Brazilians voted for Bolsonaro, to me, indicated that they were fed up with their establishment. And to all of these think tankers that think that Russia ran out of missiles two months ago, it indicated that, you know, they were stupid and didn't know what's good for them. And yes. same kind of, yeah, and same kind of thing applies to U.S. politics. You know, if, if, if the voters... If the voters don't reflect the will of the political establishment and these think tankers and the professional managerial class sitting on their laptop jobs and, and believing that they're the ones whose job is to think for everybody and tell everybody what they, quote, need to know, that phrase really irks me because it's ridiculous and it's, it's also so um, Pretentious. patronizing, you know? Um, you know and, th and then the voters are stupid and don't know what, what's good for them and they, and they, need, to, and they, they need to do better. Well, that's, that's what they did here, by the way. What, that's what they did here. I mean, with the whole um, not, uh, Washington Post stuff. Not Washington Post, I'm sorry. New York Post. Oh, we can't let the Hunter Biden story go because the public will make a wrong choice right, in regards right. to accommodating the information. We can't let you see that. Right. We can't let you see too that's much not your reality. Best interest. Yeah. Oh, and, and the same thing. I mean, I don't want to get into, I don't want to get involved in the Rose versus Wade debate, but the commentary that I've been hearing about the whole Supreme Court business over the past couple of days is, Oh, you know, we we can't let voters make these decisions. We we must. Uh, but wait a second. That's the uh, and you say you're you, I'm for democracy, which means banning people from voting on things is is a hot take that I never thought I'd hear. But here we are. Going back to what Steve Gill said, we we had also discussed. I don't know if you heard that part, but I was talking about how we were joking about why how Russia instead you know these sanctions backfiring on Russia instead of them being obliterated by U.S. sanctions, they've actually been doing fairly well in spite of them because, because and, and you, you lived in Eastern Europe during the fall of the Soviet Union. So you can tell us from, from you know, firsthand experience, I posited that the reason that the Russians are actually not, not I'm not, not going to say they're bulletproof, but that they're largely okay from these sanctions is because after the fall of the Soviet Union, what they did was rebuild their own economy within their own borders and brought back manufacturing and brought back farming. And they stopped outsourcing everything and started doing everything at home in the motherland, right? Anything from butter all the way up to making clothing, right? Manufacturing clothing. Um, so everything in between. Is that, would you say, because you were there witnessing all of this stuff and everybody rebuilding post-Soviet Union, would you say that's largely why Russia has not been impacted at all and life seems to be going on as normal for everybody else in Moscow or St. Petersburg or wherever? Pretty much, uh, I would say that um, the, they aggressively started uh, onshoring, so to speak, their industries and everything else uh, since 2014 or so. I mean, they've, they've been Build, doing that before, but not at such a high rate. But definitely, during, in 2014, when um, the the coup in Ukraine happened and Crimea happened and the initial sanctions happened, they adopted a strategy of onshoring their entire economy and not being dependent on the West uh, for anything that they couldn't help. 
And that strategy now is paying off from what I can tell. And I think these the people who created these embargoes, I won't call them sanctions. That's that's the wrong term for it. They're embargoes. Um, I, I think the people who crafted them basically went about it thinking, hey, this is what would hurt us, so it will hurt them, and therefore we're going to do it. And what's happening is it's literally hurting them. It's it's hurting the Europe. The Europeans, most of all, it's not hurting the U.S. much because it didn't have as much of a trade balance with Russia. Um, and the trade balance it currently has is really, really negative. Um, the trade deficit is at a horrible um, place, but nobody's talking about that. But it's, it's, it, it, it's absolutely wrecking the European economy. And, you know, here we have these European bureaucrats going, that's fine, everything's fine. But, you know, and the U.S. doesn't care so, so much for caring about your allies. Well, is it that they don't care or is it that they recognize that you're an injury to Europe? They're willing to sacrifice exactly. Europe. Exactly. It's a benefit it on some level to the U.S. Because think about it. Europe is going to be paying more for energy costs. Their industry is going to be decimated as a result of it. The U.S., for the most part, is oil independent and will probably be transferring over to other stuff, meaning it doesn't damage us like that. And so where's the negative for the U.S. for an ally? And yes, a competitor to take a hit for this. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is, but this is one of those, you know, they're, they're, they can't, they keep talking about how the Europeans are faithful allies, but they're treating them like, you know, abused dogs in this, in this relationship. And, you know, the Europeans are going along with it because they're, for whatever reason, they're perfectly willing to, you know, serve, serve American interests as opposed to their own. Client but state. again, you know, the French had a chance to, have, get their, have their opinion heard on the subject, and they reelected the guy who kept them locked down and literally said he wants to abuse them. So, yeah. you know, who who am I to tell them they don't know what they're thinking? I was just condemning that approach a minute ago, so I need to stay consistent to what I just said. If the French decide <laughs> that this is in their interest, then then more, you know, let, let them have at it. Stockholm They made syndrome. their bed, they should sleep in it. <laughs> Neb, we're coming to the last minute um, or so, and I wanted to hit one more story. And this is something that's coming out of the West. Okay, 30 seconds. It basically points out they're saying that Russia is about to go onto a wartime footing because they're losing badly. What's the reality in Russia right now on this issue? I mean, so far, they're in a peacetime situation. Victory Day is coming May 9th. Yeah. Um, from what I've heard from Shoigu, Shoigu's public statement, he's expecting to have about 60,000 various personnel taking part in various Victory Day parades. Um, I'm sorry, but if you're losing a war and you need to declare general mobilization and you have 60,000 people to spare for military parades, something is not, <laughs> one of these things is not true. So I guess we'll see when the parades start, whether, you know, which one of these it is. But I would imagine that, you know, no, they're not going to declare war. Neb, I believe everything that's coming out of Western media. And so reality, <laughs> reality can't be right in this. No, Neb, thank you, my man. Neb, Nebrosha Malik. Um, he is a Serbian-American journalist, blogger, translator who wrote a regular column for Antiwar.com from 2000 to 2015 and is now a senior writer for RT. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, 
I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And then floating around somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. There is an interesting report that is coming out. When is this? What date is this? Oh, this is April 29th. Never mind. I, I didn't see this report when it first came out. British MP accused of watching porn in House oh, Chambers. Yeah, yes. I hadn't seen that one. That is, oh, dude, dude, don't pull a toe no, on Jeffrey Tubin. No, yeah, don't, don't do ugh. that. Don't do that. No, yeah, that, that, you're late to that report, but that's because, Jamal, there are so many gross sex crime yeah, that stories floating about. that are happening in British Parliament. <laughs> right? No, really. Just, under the, yeah, that's just one I mean, of they many. just like float them out there and they're, it's like one after the next. So I think a lot of people have become desensitized to it. Yeah. But like there was another guy that was being, I don't know if he was arrested or at least he's in under investigation yeah. for like lewd acts with a minor. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of, yeah. There's, Britain is doing some weird stuff right now, basically. No, but that's the thing is there's a small percentage of people anywhere in the world. It's not necessarily that the Brits are doing weird stuff. Just then, the Brits. Well, it's the Brits. But the, but you can argue. <laughs> but you can argue a lot of the weird sex stories usually come out of Germany yeah. or like Japan. Well, Germany is famous for the, the, the weird, weird sex stuff. Yeah. Right. Like the stuff that you're like, oh, that's They always gruesome. talk about like German porn. And it's right, like, like, oh, God, that's, yeah. Oh, that's gruesome. Yeah. Like. Like, not even, like, I don't know how that's sexy. It's gruesome. Yeah. Where it's like, oh. Well, oh. I, I wouldn't criticize. Too bad. Not my jam, but the Brits are usually known for being buttoned down and kind of stuffy. Yeah, so it's always funny when they, yeah, so when when they, they get caught. Yeah, so it's like, ooh. Because the Germans are the opposite. Like, if you haven't been at nudity, they have no issue with nudity in Germany. It yeah, is they're much more, much more liberal yes. in, the, in the definition of the word, not the political sense. Aggressively new. In in the in the definition of the word liberal. It is not very, politically. very weird. Yes. I was what I was at a comedy well, club. Like Denmark, they're very, you know. Oh, they like that way too? Because you know it's like you have this um sauna culture in a way. Where Say what the what culture? Sauna. Like saunas? getting saunas oh, and stuff like that. They're really into saunas? Yeah. Like when you go to Finland, Finland has saunas attached to the houses and stuff really? like that. Really? Yeah. And oh. so when I'm traveling or at the very least when I was traveling, you know, I have issues where I have to fluid balance because uh, of treatments and stuff like that. I have no way to give her the fluid. So saunas is one of those ways that helps get the fluid out. Basically a... Um, oh, no kidding. The, the heat rooms. What are they saying? Yeah, saunas. Yeah. And so temperature, you can sweat out and that type of stuff. So it allows a way, an alternate way of trying to control the amount of fluid balance. All right, great. So I go for functional reasons. And I go, I'm in Germany. I go to a German sauna and everybody is naked. Everybody oh. in the sauna is completely nude, and I am wearing shorts, and I am thinking, oh, my Are God. Are they, like, like, separated by gender? No. Everybody is everybody? Everybody is everybody. Women, bush, Ooh. breasts, penis, all of it. Just, Just uh, flying around. Flying around. And I'm sitting there in the corner, like, I feel embarrassed because I've got shorts on, right? Everybody else is naked, oh. and I'm like, all right. So you were modest. I didn't know they were doing that. Okay. You like, didn't know I went that was there, a thing. Yeah, I didn't know that was a thing. I mean, I just came out of like Spain or somewhere. Spain, the guy comes in making sure, hey, you got your shorts on? Yes, I got no shorts. Okay, okay, great. So everywhere else understood it. We're not, we're, we're you know, you got to be clothed in these sauna. Okay. Germany, not so much. Every German sauna was basically a nude and a co-ed sauna. And I am sitting there like, oh my God, I am so embarrassed. I felt great for having my shirt off. Because I have so many surgical scars. And like I said, I had more surgeries by the time I was 30. I think I had like 30 surgeries before I was 30. And so for me, it was like just that part was liberating. I was like, I've done this. This is great. I've been able to do this. And now everybody is naked. And it's the weirdest thing ever. 
I have a conversation with this African-American woman at a comedy club, and part of her routine was the aggressiveness of German nudity and how she was so off-put by it when she gets there. In your face nude. In your face. And she was saying, like, they were at a park. Look at my nudity. Look at my nudity. (laughs) She said, one day, I am in a park. I said, screw it. And she said, I took off my my shirt. I'm walking around with my breast out. At a park? At a park. Because, again, it was like a nude beach or something like that. Oh. And she said, a guy comes up and is like, M&M, not M&M's. He said, um... Cookies or chocolate cookies or something like that. Talking about like a breast. Yeah, her point is like, this country is aggressively nude and it is off-putting for people who are coming from America, more modest countries. It is very, very weird. Interesting. I see. I've been to Germany many times, but never. Oh, go to a sauna visit. I've never done the sauna there, and I'd never. Yeah, I mean, from what I saw, they're just typical, you know. Oh, go to the sauna. Down the River Rhine, and oh, you got to go. And they're playing a lot of, you know, that. That what they're famous for is that discotheque music, yeah. right? Like that, dun, 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 that dun, dun, dun. E- uh, yeah. the electronic, electronic music. There is a big building that is it's white. It's this kind of weird octagon. I can't think of the name of the place, but it's an entire spa um, facility in the pool area. See, this has got to be like remnants from the Ottoman Empire, like because the, the Turks love. Oh, this is all that. this is very weird though. It, it's it's like a sci-fi place, it's like the in the pool German itself. Twist. It's all black. The pool, meaning it's all the, it's pitch black, and you have lasers flying all around the room, and in the water and stuff like that. And then as you go out of that, now you have to wear your clothes there. You got to wear your clothes in that. Um, but people were still having sex in the pool. So there's that. When you walk out, there are multiple oh, sauna things. There's alcohol when you get alcohol. But when you're in the sauna, it has to be nude. And they have multiple saunas that are in the building that people can walk to and get massages and stuff like that. It is, an, it is a weird sci-fi-esque building. Germany is weird with that stuff. I mean, granted, weird in context to us. We're more modest. Laser darkness pool. It looks... That's it puts, already... It is bizarre. I can't think of the name of the place. It's this kind of octagon place. I need to find it. Because every time I think of that stuff, it's so wild. It is, look, I enjoyed it, personally. Where is this? Like Cologne? No, Berlin? this is Berlin. This, this is Berlin. Is Berlin? Downtown Berlin. Berlin somewhere? This is in Berlin. Berlin. You can't miss it. It's The place is the weirdest looking place you would ever see. It's this white shaped um, with all of these um, weird so shapes like associated with the building. it's like an architectural design yeah, to it. to the building so itself. So you would know it if you saw it. You would know it if you saw well, it. Well, that's... Next time I'm in Berlin, I know yeah, I where go. to avoid. No, go, go, check it out. That stuff is amazing. I love Not those experiences. Not trying to see that. <laughs> Not trying, just saying. I mean, Iceland, even the Blue Lagoon in Iceland. You have to, is it called Blue Lagoon? I think it's called Blue Lagoon. Again, sauna, spa, got to be naked when you're taking your shower. And they have monitors to walk in to make sure that you're naked it? when you're taking your shower. Like I don't even like the Korean spas here because you're gonna you're gonna look at grandma's boobs hanging to her belly button. One of the most off-putting experiences like, was laying just... on a slab with this guy. Yeah, it's, you're, it's like you're on a slab, you're naked. I think this was in Turkey. No, no, no. This was in Georgia. I think it was in Georgia. And it's like the guy comes in. Georgia, Europe, or Georgia, America? Georgia, Europe. Okay. And the guy comes in with this huge loofah. You're laying on this slab, just this slab of thing. And he's scrubbing you like an animal. He's yeah. like, you're scrubbing, scrubbing, scrubbing. And he's like, flip over. It's like, I'm holding my, you know, my area. He's scrubbing, he's scrubbing. And then he's like, throwing water on you and everything Sounds else. Sounds violent. Yeah. It's it's weird. <laughs> it feels like you're being scrubbed down like an animal. It's, oh it's a very bizarre experience. Would I do it again? Yes. It's all. It's rejuvenating. Thank you, Andre. It's rejuvenating. <laughs> it's rejuvenating. The pool, this was one of those, it was a hot spot, right? And so when you go in, the water is upset. I can't believe anybody could get into that water. It took me about 15 minutes just to submerge myself because it was that hot. And oh, the room is 
blazing hot. You're sweating bullets the entire time you're through. And so when the guy comes in, you get the rub down. He's throwing the water. He's like, dude, stop, stop. The water is boiling. And of course, he's like, this is funny. That's not funny. Oh, my but word. But you get to scrub down everything else. Loved it. Would do it again. Recommend it to anybody. That's, yeah, it's, not my jam. It's like a, like a metal, it's, not a, it's like a um, slab of, of rock or something. And they just, just rub down. Same thing in, in Spain. They have those too. Yeah, like these I kind know. of Turkish it's, spas and stuff like of, that. Yeah, a lot of the, the Ottoman influence over Love that it. region of the world. Try it. You gotta not try it once. My, I mean, I even like my it. wife did it. My wife was off put by the whole thing in Iceland when she was in the shower. She was like, I don't think they're giving females the same beatdown that men are getting, though. You're just getting like pummeled. She did in in Spain, she did, yeah. She's getting just. They like came the in, they did the same thing with her. In that case, it was a woman that came in to do it. And yeah, they like had a the loofah. A giant woman with a giant loofah. Rubbing. Yeah, scrub you like an animal. I'll roll water on you, all the good stuff. Right, it sounds like they're purifying you to cook you for dinner. <laughs> so throw you in a big pot like Hansel and Gretel. So I don't know. Don't I don't know. Knock, I'm don't suspicious knock it till you try it. I'm suspicious <laughs> that. Anyway, let's let's get to news. Let's get to news. That's an interesting personal story, folks. Thank you for that, Chamorro. You're perfectly welcome. <laughs> let's get to domestic news. The U.S. Supreme Court Justice... Samuel Alito has canceled his upcoming speaking engagement at the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals Judicial Conference. It's a gathering of New Orleans-based federal appeals court judges and district court judges from Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. The matter was reported by Reuters, confirmed by Patricia McCabe, who is a spokesperson for the high court. This is a quote from Justice Alito. He says, We cannot allow our decisions to be affected by any extraneous influences such as concern about the public's reaction to our work. And then here, U.S. Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, said the quiet part out loud during a congressional hearing about the new disinformation governance board established by the Biden administration. He says that they can't be trusted at all because the federal government is the biggest purveyor of disinformation in the world. He said, quote, I think you have no idea what disinformation is, and I don't think the government is capable of it, referring to running this board, not 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 capable of disinformation. Okay, we can do disinformation in America. He says he said this to the Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas during this hearing Wednesday. He says, Do you know who the greatest propagator of disinformation in the history of the world is the U.S. government. And then he went on to enumerate things like the Pentagon Papers, the former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, how he dragged the U.S. into the Vietnam War by lying. He brought up President Reagan lying about the Iran-Contra affair. And of course, George W. Bush lying about WMDs to justify invading Iraq. I would say those are pretty substantial disinformation campaigns with massive consequences. In international news, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky really did want a war with Russia. Otherwise, he would have negotiated long before the Kremlin's special military operation started. That is according to the former president of Brazil and new candidate for president now, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva. You guys all know him as just Lula. He said all that to Time Magazine Wednesday. Lula discussed a wide range of 
issues plaguing his own country, as well as global problems, including this war in Ukraine. And he said, quote, he did want war. If he didn't want war, he would have negotiated a little more. That's it, Lula said. Yeah, Lula, that's it. And the U.S. has provided intelligence that aims at assisting Ukrainians in targeting and killing several of the Russian generals in action in the ongoing special military operation in Ukraine. That's according to the New York Times Wednesday, citing U.S. officials' claims. According to that report, as Ukrainian authorities claim to have killed at least a dozen Russian generals, military analysts have reported have reportedly been baffled by this unexpectedly high number. But the U.S. officials are declining to specify the true number of high-ranking officers that have allegedly been killed. So they will not, U.S. officials will not confirm that number of a dozen. Then the Chinese government has run a comprehensive, what they're calling a stress test drill back in late February into early March to model out the impacts of potential Western sanctions similar to those imposed on Russia, what that would have on their economy, the impact there. That's according to The Guardian with a a, citing a source that they're not naming, but apparently with knowledge of this exercise. The The reported methodology here is involving the key government agencies, including bank regulators, international trade bodies, and officials are tasked with formulating emergency measures to be taken if restrictions were imposed. Quote, those involved in this exercise use how Russia was treated as a baseline for China's own policy response should it be treated in the same fashion by the West. This stress test involves a range of methodology, including modeling. That's what the source says. In tech news, PayPal has released nearly 10,000 bucks it seized from the alternative media site Consortium News. That's according to Joe Lauria, the editor-in-chief. However, PayPal did tell them that they could potentially hold their money for up to six months without explanation. But then suddenly, PayPal told Joe, okay, your funds are now eligible for withdrawal after freezing $9,348 over unspecified risk exposure associated with the account. So they withdrew the money pretty quickly. I doubt they would trust PayPal anymore after this. And then in Earth Science, an undisclosed cave in Alabama has revealed a thousand-year-old cave painting, some of which are now thought to be the largest ever in the United States. So until recently, the mud glyphs were lost to the naked eye after the mud naturally accumulated on the cave walls, you know, in the past millennium since its its creation. Uh, This is all being published in Antiquity magazine detailing some exciting discoveries of cave art there in Alabama. They're not telling anyone where this is because they are obviously trying to learn a little bit more about it before it gets roped off and, you know, people can tour it someday. Someday. They're using new 3D photogrammetry, a technique that produces digital models that can be manipulated in virtual spaces. So that's pretty interesting. In business news, Slovakia has warned Wednesday that it will not be able to agree to the European Commission's proposal for a ban on Russian oil and has called for more time to find alternative fuel suppliers. The proposed embargo is part of the latest Ukraine-related sanctions against Moscow. 
that would see crude imports from Russia being phased out over the next six months and refined products by the end of the year. An exemption was drafted for Slovakia and Hungary, which are heavily dependent on Russia, giving them until the end of 2023 to comply. And then this day in history, in 1904, Cy Young pitched the first perfect game in modern Major League Baseball. 1921, Chanel Number no. 5 perfume introduced into the market. Women still wearing it today. 1934, the first Three Stooges film is released. 1949, the Council of Europe was founded. 1955, West Germany regains full sovereignty after World War II. And then in 1980, the British Special Air Services, known as SAS, terminate the Iranian embassy siege in London. And those are going to do it for your headlines this Thursday. Cinco de Mayo, you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. The place is called the Liquidrome. Liquidrome. Yeah, in Berlin. I looked it up. It's called the Liquidrome. It's a very weird-looking building going up. You can't miss the building. Spa, sauna, the Make works. it back out there. I'm going to... Definitely check it out. I'm just going to... I'm curious to see who comes in and out of it. <laughs> All sorts of people, believe it or not. I remember this one guy was like overweight, maybe 400 pounds, naked as the day he was born. Oh, my goodness. Infinitely confident in his nakedness. I right. that guy. And I was like, I want to be that guy when I grow up. But let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas and Chan was like, to each his own. Whatever. You guys are listening to Thomas and Chan. We have Tyler Nixon coming back up. You're not going to want to miss it. We have a lot of great topics to talk to Tyler about, including DNI owning up to millions of warrantless wire searches. 3.4 million. If it's that many, how many are they actually doing? You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined by my co-host Manila Chan coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. Gotta read this report. Now just read it straight. The FBI conducted nearly 3.4 million searches of Americans' data last year without a single warrant. Since 2013, Office of Director of National Intelligence has published its annual statistics transparency report, which discloses that the U.S. intelligence community, quote, use of national security surveillance authorities, unquote, the most recognizable of these might be FISA. Um, the extensive report covers a wide range of intelligence communities' updates and data, but this edition is uniquely concerning. As originally spotted by the Wall Street Journal, the ASTR for calendar year 2021 states that the FBI conducted, quote, fewer than 3,394, I'm sorry, 3,394,053 searches, U.S. person queries between December 2020 and November 2021. That is amazing. Though the FBI is legally required to obtain an order for the U.S. Foreign Intelligence Services Court, basically FISIC, prior to assessing the results of each search, none of these searches involved a warrant. 
This is coming out of a um, magazine, Extreme Tech. But it was, again, as they noted, it was the Wall Street Journal. They basically pointed this out. They have a conversation about this and other issues. We're joined with the one and only Tyler Nixon. He's an Army industry veteran, counselor at law, constitutionalist, advocate, writer, technologist, critical historian, and extremist in the defense of liberty. Tyler, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? Good, good. Good morning, tomorrow, Manila. You know, I was stationed in Berlin. Where are you? In the Army. Oh, no. And I'm telling you guys, yeah. Nudity, bring right? Me back to, bring me back to some traumatic moments. <laughs> it's that way, right? I mean, I, I'm not wrong on the nudity thing, right? That is, it is something in their culture that is just there. We went to, a bunch of us went to like a water park. And you got, you know, you think it's kids running around and there's like, you know, guys just sitting there with their, their junk hanging out everywhere. Like, you know, not, not, not getting changed or no, just sitting there like, you know, lounging and, uh, no, no issue of insecurity. Just bam, bam. Just, just enjoy the jewels. Yeah. It's it's amazing. uh, I remember going to the nude beach with, uh, we dared, well, Adjacent to the new beach, I should say, <laughs> with my friend of mine who was a who was a uh, a cook, and he was a big guy, and I just remember him looking over and sort of like kind of in the middle distance, saying, "You know, I just I really want to take my shirt off, but I'm totally fat and disgusting." And <laughs> it's like, dude, they don't care. It just I, I fell out laughing, and I felt, you know, geez, you know, I, I, yeah, they have no shame over there. They certainly are not. Uh, it's it's shocking, but um, yeah, it's interesting. It, it an is interesting place for an American. It is. It takes a bit. No, in a way, I, I respect that. The, the fact that they can embrace everybody's yeah. sizes and shapes. In a way, I get it. I respect it. But I guess maybe the, you know, especially being Asian American and, you know, coming from such a modest culture. Yeah. I would just, I would literally not be able to look people in the eye. I I just, Don't get me wrong. I did it. I did the nudity thing when I went to the Liquidrome. I did it. Balls out. I think I'd that more like more like we have to lock their eyes, you know, oh, rather no. than no. See, my I looking at I would feet. not look. Yeah, I would. I was. I would look at feet. I felt like I was. I was. It was off putting, right? Because there are women who are sitting beside you, completely naked. It's like, okay, don't look. Keep your eyes very focused oh. in a very specific direction. I don't want them to think you're perving out. Maybe it they just, want it you. Weird. Maybe they want you to look. Maybe they. They enjoy the look. It's like, look at the bush. It's like, no. But I'm maybe they that. enjoy it. I mean, I don't know. Oh, they, yeah. They, they don't, don't Yeah, they're not big on, like, shaving and, and grooming too much. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> hair everywhere, let's oh, just say. all right. But, Tyler, let's get to <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you for your— I'm glad you can back me up on that, Tyler. Because it's like— Because Manila's like, what? Is like, that bad? It's I mean, like, yeah, yeah they're intense. I've been to Germany many times, and I never saw anything like go that. Go to a spa. Or go to a new beach. Like the only massages yeah, I got Berlin were typical. is its own its own entity oh, in, in many ways. Yeah, I loved it. I'm sure it's there's still that element to it. Oh, it is. I mean, this was what two, three years ago. So this wasn't that long ago for me. I haven't I haven't been to Germany in probably about ten years. But I mean, Stuttgart, Cologne, Berlin didn't never saw any of that. <laughs> well, I was there 30 years ago, and I, I, I don't think they've gotten more prudish since then. <laughs> <laughs> no, they have not. They have it. They have it. Uh, but let's get into this, Tyler. So, yeah, the DNI comes out with this and basically said, hey, yeah, we had 3.4 million wireless searches. Now, the FISA court in and of itself, right, what, 99.7% of those things get approved, which is, what, 0.3% are the ones that don't get approved for whatever particular reason. This is not even a situation where the defense attorney needs to be there. Defense attorney is not even giving a heads up on it. This is entirely something where the government is saying, trust us, we need a warrant for this. This is not even that, meaning that rigged system that is a phony court that they even call a court. That's not even that. 
this is 3.4 million searches without warrantless. even a search warrant. But you guys, this put, putting this in the naked content or context rather no is that is that the government wants, you know, you, your data to be naked and nude for them to look at. Just out there. What is your take on this, Tyler? How is this legal? I thought we had a first a constitution here. What is the Fourth Amendment or something? It's sad because, well, first of all, I'm surprised it's only 3.4 million or whatever. No, that's it is. all they admit to. That's all they admit to. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And then the fact that they just, you know, admit to it, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we did that. You know, this is this is the this is the result of, um, frankly, the hysteria and the um, the draconian sort of totalitarian measures taken in the wake of 9-11 by the criminals, you know, Bush, Cheney, Michael Hayden, frankly, uh, you know, who set up this mass surveillance system that was uh, originally supposed to be if you list, if you followed any of Bill Binney's stuff, he created a, a system within the uh, NSA that was unique, very narrowly tailored to gather the information that they needed against terrorists, against, you know, actual people who were threats. And Hayden came in, they blew Binney and, and uh, the likes of, say, John Kiriakou and the CIA out and just said, no, 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 we're building this massive dragnet style, you know, it, it gets everything. And it's, you know, directly linked, frankly, to the to, to big tech. And, you know, you would have thought in, that we would have seen tech um, in a sense, liberate us much uh, in, in some sense from uh, the intrusions of government. And, and it's very sad how it's been co-opted and has grown up hand in hand with, you know, what, uh, what's approaching a police state, frankly, um, with their capabilities, certainly, that it would be easy enough to flip a switch. And then, you know, bringing in the, the so-called disinformation governance, whatever it is, board, uh, you know, that, I find that to be very appropriate because I think this, under this administration, certainly disinformation governance is exactly what we're getting. I mean, this this is the hallmark of of this administration, which is just like the whole thing is disinformation, uh, just nonstop. And you know, this is and with where's the oversight? I mean, Rand Paul, for example, would stand up and and fight this, but I mean, where are the civil libertarians? I mean, I, you know, there used to be. People who uh, Senator Frank Church, you know, the, the who were shocked at this stuff. Now it's just like, okay, let's just reauthorize it after we found out the abuses have gone further and further. Uh, you know, I don't know what it's going to take because the the CIA or the general and in so-called intelligence community has has become a hydra, has become a massive, almost un, I mean, truly unaccountable appendage of uh, government power. That the Congress can't control clearly, as Trump has demonstrated. That, you know, the president himself has no control over, um, and you know, the courts. I mean, it's it's so long after the fact they've you know upped the ante on the abuses to the point where, uh, you know, if if they were to rule or to issue orders, any federal judges issue orders against, it's like you know the the, the horses are out of the barn at that point, and they've already taken it to the next level. So, I don't know where you know what it's going to take. Maybe generational change, but we have we are living under. Uh, you know, the, just the, like I said, the flip of a switch to, to the level of tyranny that's uneven, has never even been conceived by, say, the Stasi in East Germany, speaking of Germany, uh, on, on a level that's and, and available to any whatever corrupt, uh, transient uh, political or uh, bureaucratic, um, you know, uh, schlub is, is, uh, happens to be in, in, in the position at that point. So, um, it's very dangerous, and I, I just I wish I had an easy solution other than just frankly 
wholesale reform, dismantling the alphabet soup and scrambling it back up again. Uh, you know, the CIA, the FBI, especially the FBI, the FBI is just, well, the FBI has always been corrupt, frankly. As long as J. Edgar Hoover's name is on the, the headquarters of that building, it will remain, in my opinion, corrupt. Um, you know, that, that serial blackmailer needs to be removed, and I can't believe they would exalt him. But, uh, you know, there's just this level of impunity and now a partisan taint to it, uh, you know, particularly with like the January 6th stuff. I mean, you look at the criminality going on uh, just in so many areas, uh, just people being abused and, 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 and they're going after these political crimes. So, quote unquote, these really persecutions. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I, I said Bush, Cheney et al., but, you know, the Clintons, they, they, they shouldn't escape, frankly, the um, their share of the blame because they're just I mean, you know, that's not that's not a family. It's a crime syndicate. Um, and, you know, they, they they certainly I mean, Hillary, when she first uh, came to the White House with Bill, you know, when they rode into town on their sleaze river, uh, they basically uh, she ordered the FBI files of all, you know, all of their major opponents to be brought to her. Um, and they did it. And this is just, you know, this was probably the beginnings of just the rampant abuse of, uh, and it's now it's reached a, sy a systemic and systematic level, a rampant abuse of powerful bureaucracies and law enforcement agencies as just mere political weapons. Um, and I, again, I, I'm sort of almost at a loss because it's grown so large and so comprehensive and the tentacles are so deep and uh, widespread that how do you stop it? Because it's like, if you build it, that something like that, who, who, who can possibly believe it's not going to end up being abused? Well, t Tyler, t two parts here. Do you really want, I mean, there are some people like with the Constitution, we were talking about that with Dan Lazar yesterday. He just wants to overhaul the whole damn thing, right? Whereas Jamarl and I are kind of taking a more modest approach. I'd be freaked out by that. Saying, let's build on that. And, and here's the foundation. Let's fix what's wrong and get it up to date. So section 702 of the, the FISA laws are the controversial ones. That's the one that allows um, law enforcement to, they call it incidentally yeah. spy. Because like you may not be the target. But we can peek. But you may not be the target, but like the, the, the dragnet can be so wide of like, you know, five degrees of separation or whoever's calling into you, right? So they incidentally get to spy on your friends because they texted you or they called you or whatever. Um, so which, I, which I believe it can, means one person could potentially create 60,000 possible innocent people being surveilled. Yes. So, I mean, is, is it just a matter of like maybe re-examining 702? And secondly, secondly, with the advent of social media, one, I'm not talking, criminals have always been dumb. They've always been caught on camera. And you, I get that. And then nowadays with social media, when people are doing dumb things, they, yes, they post themselves doing dumb things on social media <laughs> and get themselves caught. They're live streaming their crimes. Right, so right, right. needs to do right, that surveillance. Right. So, yes, yeah, so they're in a way aiding the surveillance state. But of course, to your point that, you know, these social media and these big tech companies are, you know, oftentimes brought over to the Hill to discuss about giving backdoors to the CIA, to the FBI, to local cops even. Um, they're brought to local jurisdictions sometimes. But we as a society, forget the politicians. Like I've given up on the politicians a long time ago. After Ron Paul in 2008, I gave up a long time ago. But 
Why aren't the people, like, have we just conditioned our public, our society to accept that we live in a surveillance state where there's a camera right there, a camera right there, a camera at that corner, a camera in your car, a camera on your phone. They're tracking you on your phone everywhere you walk, everywhere you walk to the bathroom. DNI might know. Literally, we've just conditioned our society to forego privacy. Like, we've just been, we've, children are born now and there's nanny cams on them. Front door. Front, ring doorbell. Yeah. We, we've conditioned the whole of America to give up understanding that privacy is a natural human right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not necessarily that, you know, you would have something to hide in the old, well, if you have nothing to hide, then why would you be concerned? It's like, well, you know, gee, I, you know, I guess I just want every possible thought and every possible thing in your life to be, uh, you know, available to whoever, whatever prying eyes decide uh, you know, and it's the fact of, uh, look, I you know I think you're absolutely right. And, and perhaps it's generational, perhaps privacy in, in the sense that we knew it before the information age is just something that will be antiquated and will pass into eternity because it's just not possible anymore. And I think maybe the, you know, this next generation coming along and the, the generations, they've just become accustomed um, to just putting all their stuff out there in the first place. Um and, 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 you know, it's like, who needs to spy on them? They're, they're open books and, and, you know, frankly, to a fault at, at, with much of it. Um, but, you know, just that it's the, the fact of not being able to, I think, have private conversations and to share, you know, intimate thoughts and to have um, anything about you potentially exposed to those who would use it. Um, and, and look, I mean, I think most people look, we are, as you said, being surveilled all the time. I mean, I think our phone, your phone is a microphone, um, has a microphone that's constantly on and is clearly being used to manipulate. I mean, they're, they're using what they, what the, what it hears, no matter who it's from to tailor ads and things like that. Um, you know, we might've lost Tyler. We'll get him back. I mean, look, that's, really- oh gosh, I'm sorry. Like I, I just was going on for a minute. Um, yeah, I don't know how that happened. Um, so, uh, yeah, what I was saying was, um, I think we've become accustomed to not uh, not having any privacy, you know, because the next generation rising again, they just they just throw it all out there. But you know, that doesn't mean that we should just simply give up on the idea that you could ever have any intimate or personal or private conversations. And I think it comes down to not so much that the scope and extent. Uh, and pervasiveness and insidiousness of the surveillance possibilities, whether it be a phone, you know, your phone is a microphone that broadcasts everything. Uh, they use it to tailor ads to you. And, you know, that's pretty intrusive and pretty invasive, in my opinion. But, you know, it comes down to what kind of government do we have? I mean, if we had a government that had any scruples and any real ethics and had any, and, and we, it wasn't being, frankly, co-opted by people who were clearly willing to uh, exploit and abuse these powers for uh, partisan purposes for their own ends and getting back to the Clintons who I just think are the like the, very much the the root of all this evil when they w- rolled into town uh, between the Clintons and the Bushes I tell you I mean and I, I will say this you know Donald Trump you can bash him to oblivion as far as I'm concerned but forever this man should have statues built to him because he took down not only the Clintons, but the Bushes too, in one fell swoop in one election. And, you know, I'd sing hosannas to this man for, for the, you know, having the courage and frankly, the bravado and the brash to do it. Um, you know, putting, putting a stop to those two crime families that have run amok in America. Um, but I'm getting off topic here a little bit. Um, you know, I just, I think generationally, um, 
it's it, again, we have to have ethics in government because it doesn't matter whatever tools they have at their disposal, they're going to use. And when you have people like the Clintons, and we have a political class that is is just it's a race to the bottom of degeneracy and lies. Who can like get away with the worst? I mean, you look at an Adam Schiff. I mean, this man is a serial liar, defamer, violator, criminal. I mean, and, and he's, he's just sued. completely impugned from any type of uh, any type of um, uh, consequences for all this stuff he he's does. He's getting and, sued right now. Right there. By, and I'm glad you said that. John, John Paul Mack. John Isaac, Mack, the computer laptop repairman. repairman guy. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that because we can go right into that story. So the Delaware computer repairman who basically blew the whistle on a Hunter Biden laptop. And, of course, laptop from hell, as Miranda Devine calls it in her book. I mean, all sorts of interesting things like him, um, Hunter Biden doing crack. Hunter Biden measuring M&Ms on his penis. Again, I applaud him for that. That is not an easy thing to do, the M&M challenge. I think every man should be doing the M&M challenge at some point in their life. And, of course, I'm talking to prostitutes. And but, underage girls. And underage girls. But the key part of that, well, the underage girl was pretty bad also. But the it's the issue with Biden and the emails that implicate Joe Biden into business dealings that Joe Biden said he had nothing to do with. But the repairman... Is basically falling out of the news. Well, he's back into the news. And so he's basically suing Adam Schiff. I just read it. Um, he is suing Adam Schiff, CNN, The Daily Beast, and Politico, saying they falsely accused him of peddling Russian disinformation. And he lost his shop. He lost his business. He was harassed by big tech for 18 months. Death threats. The death threats. The media, Delaware locals. The guy's life was utterly ruined for doing the right thing, for doing the right thing. He did nothing wrong. But you had all of these Democrats and liberals that were screaming that, oh, this is Russian propaganda. This isn't true. This isn't nonsense. Right. It was he, all true. He went to the press last. Yes. We should say that. We, he went through the proper channels. He went to, you know, all the way yeah. up to the Secret Service. Yes. And everybody sat on their hands. And when he was like, no, all right, I'm going to the press. Yeah. And that was months later. Yes. And so right here, he says, after fighting to reveal the truth, all I want now is for the rest of the country to know that there was a collective and orchestrated effort by social and mainstream media to block a real story with real consequence for the nation. The 45-year-old Mac told The Post, quote, this is a collusion led by 51 former pillars of the intelligence community and backed by words and actions of a politically motivated DOG and FBI. I want this lawsuit to reveal the collusion. And more importantly, who gave the marching orders? Poor guy. Good job, Mac. Good job, Mac. I am sorry that you lost your business. I'm sorry you dealt with that harassment, but good job for pushing back. What are your thoughts on this, Tyler? And does he have a chance in this lawsuit? I tell you, it's interesting just because the um, when I was in, it was right before the election. Um, I was in town in Wilmington with a friend, you know, visiting back back there visiting, and it, his shop was right in this uh, little shopping center in, in uh, Wilmington, just up from downtown, called Trolley Square. And I, I mean, I signed up for the army at the recruiting station there. They had, you know, the little restaurants. I mean, I spent like my youth in that, that, that uh, shopping center and we were walking around and I, and I realized that I said, Hey, that guy's computer shop is back there. Um, and we went around to the back side of it and I, I, I almost, I was getting ready to walk in and I just, I lost my nerve. <laughs> I was going to walk in and just say, Hey, thanks. You know? And I, so I just, I, I sort of waved off at the last second, um, and just walked away. And I noticed uh, there was a there was a sort of people that clearly were from out of town or reporter types. Well, lo and behold, not weeks later, 
I get a call from, uh, I think it was Adam Goldman at the New York Times saying, were, were you the conduit to the uh, Rudy Giuliani from this, you know, this, this computer? I'm like, are you, what, are you kidding me? How, how would they identify me walking around like in plain clothes, so to speak? You know, I mean, I wasn't like wearing a suit. I didn't look, I mean, you know, I just was very dressed down. And it, I mean, my God, like who was watching that that would come out just because I simply walked in front of the place and never even went in that, you know, anyway. Um, but no, this, this, this poor guy. You know, he really he he went above and beyond, frankly, because I mean, he gave it to the FBI. They clearly didn't do anything, and he realized that, like, holy, holy, wow, this is not going anywhere, and there's clear corruption. So he put himself out there and has paid the price for it, as does any person who, frankly, runs afoul of this uh, this corruption machine that is the uh, the National Democrat Party right now, and, and probably you know the last I don't know couple decades, really, and with Adam Schiff being uh, one of the you know the foremost perpetrators. Unfortunately, with Adam Schiff, he has uh, some level of congressional immunity. But, you know, I urged Roger Stone when he, we were in the midst of that because Adam Schiff and, frankly, Eric Swalwell, uh, Jackie Spear, all those people on the, the Intelligence Committee at the time that, you know, they were persecuting Stone and running around and defaming, frankly, people like Michael Caputo saying they're Russian agents, basically, they're doing Putin's bidding. Uh, you know, what are your connections? Uh, at, at that time, um, when they were doing that, I said, you need to you need to push back because they were first of all, they were violating outright the rules of the Intelligence Committee, which basically prohibit explicitly prohibit. And by the way, the Intelligence Committee, uh, House Intelligence Committee members take an additional oath uh, on top of their oath of office uh, to not disclose or and they're not just to disclose, discuss or even cause to be disclosed or discussed any material whatsoever that is obtained in executive session, which is the case with Roger Stone's testimony and a number of other witnesses. And these people went on, I mean, Schiff went on the air literally within like an hour of the end of the, the testimony and began discussing and disclosing what was said or what wasn't said. And they all did it, including uh, Hines from, uh, I guess, Connecticut as well. Every single member, I think, save one. And I documented this and, and, and said, Roger, we need to bring this, you know, you need to bring this to light publicly. But unfortunately, he was embroiled in his trial at the time, and he was, first of all, gagged. And so, you know, obviously he couldn't speak publicly at all about anything because of this lawless uh, autocratic judge who oversaw his, his show trial. Um, and he never, you know, he, it, they, his trial team basically was, you know, they didn't want to bring any additional, I guess, heat or have him cause any heat by bringing any outside actions like a defamation suit or some sort of action to bring these people to account for having violated the rules to, at his expense. And by the way, here's what's crazy. He has a, 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 when he testifies, if they, if they discuss or disclose someone's testimony, the person has an immediate right to a copy of the transcript. They denied that to him for almost two years. And it's funny because all through 2017, excuse me, 2018, Swalwell, uh, Hines, uh, Spear, and all the members of the Intelligence Committee were saying, you need to disclose these transcripts. The Republicans are withholding these transcripts, blah, blah, blah. As soon as they got in there, as soon as the Democrats took over in, in early 2019, they immediately just said, oh, well, we've had, had, to, had to hand all these transcripts over to the intelligence community for, author, or, you know, for clearance. And suddenly it took a year and a half for those to come out. I mean, this is this is the double game. The deceit level of these people is beyond. It's just it's it's mind boggling. Adam Schiff is a criminal and it's, frankly, Swalwell and the rest of them. 
And this poor man has, has experienced what, you know, the little guy, what, what the average person can face or, or lo- is looking to face when they are in the target sites or run afoul of this, this criminal syndicate that's posing as a political party. What about that? With Put on your lawyer hat for just a quick second. As a lawyer, he's filing defamation, libel. He's lost his business so he can prove that there's damage. Does, does he win this in the end? And he can prove they were lying. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this, or or recklessly with reckless disregard for the truth, which, um, you know, I, I, I think it, it's tough. I'd have to see how it's laid out, how, how they've structured the cause of action, how they've you know, structured the complaint and who he's suing. Uh, as I said, congressional members have a certain amount of immunity when they're discussing, uh, you know, when they're speaking. What about but, CNN? They don't have total immunity. They can't just say yeah, they can't just say anything about anybody. Well, CNN lost to, to Nick Sandman. That's a really good point. Yeah, no, exactly. And here's the thing is this guy, I mean, he he reported this or he provided this information and it's, it comes down to the public figure standard, which I think is in desperate need. And maybe this uh, this case involving Sarah Palin will will forge new ground on that since the court seems to be uh, in the uh, in the mode of overturning some of these uh, precedents, some bad precedents, frankly, whether you agree with abortion or not, Roe v. Wade is a terrible decision. Um and basically, uh, New York Times v. Sullivan is set up this this incredibly high bar where if you're in any way a public figure uh, or it's a matter of public controversy, that the it's an actual malice standard, which means you have to have known it was false or had totally reckless disregard for the truth in order to uh, to survive a motion to dismiss for defamation. In this case, though, this gen- this man did not put himself out there. You know, he was not trying. He was simply a. It's the subject of news, but he wasn't putting, you know, putting himself out there in the sense he's a public figure. So I think it might be he might be able to use the lower standard, which wouldn't be actual malice, which would be whether what was said was false or not. And that's it. You know, that's all that you need to do is prove the falsity of it and that it injured you. And it would be lovely to see Adam Schiff and frankly, these 51 intelligence criminals who came out uh, and lied to the country uh, with this nonsense about the Hunter Biden laptop all held to account. And this man see some justice uh, since, you know, it, it, it's been denied to so many uh, who, have, who have been defamed by this uh, smear machine that exists right now. That would be something. Yeah, because I mean, I get that politicians have that standard. What about CNN, Politico and Daily Beast? I mean, is the standard the same? Repeating defamation, even if the original person is immune, uh, is defamation. I mean, it, all it has to be is, is published, which literally is just can be saying it to another person. That's all it takes. And if he can, you know, he clearly has plenty of uh, plenty of evidence to present on that front. And the question is, I mean, I know it's an open and shut case, except for, of course, the, you know, the political influence and where he brings the case and whether you have a an ethical judge um, who is not politicized or partisan. And whether, again, the congressional immunity aspect is going to be brought in and, and used to, you know, vitiate liability, which should definitely accrue because this man was the, the victim the innocent uh, bystander victim of this, uh, you know, cabal of 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 liars who now are still riding high, you know, still with with the biggest liar of all in the presidency, now senile though. <laughs> Tyler, Little buddy Joe, thank you, my man. Always appreciate these conversations. And yeah, you're as a lawyer, you have a you can give a take on this where it's like, okay, what is the real reality of the potential for the case? Like anybody can open a case, right? You can open a case on anything but whether it's a legitimate case. And on this case, I really hope this guy gets um, what he wants out of this because yeah. his life was get destroyed. Thrown out. Yeah. I don't think it'll get thrown out. I think it'll be heard. Yeah. And I think, I think, I mean, I'm not Tyler. I'm not a lawyer, but 
I think he has a good chance of winning. Fingers crossed. Definitely fingers crossed. As long as he can get to, to pass summary judgment and be able to begin deposing these people, that would be lovely. Just even if he ultimately doesn't win, to be able to put Adam Schiff under oath. You know? So deposition is basically getting the person under oath and the lawyer can ask various questions to the person about and pertaining to the case. Keep your eyes on Durham. There's some interesting stuff going on with, in, in that with Fusion GPS. And it's all, it's all unraveling the web of lies that is Hillary Clinton's. Go into that for the moment. Give us a summary of that, because I saw something about it, but I didn't have the opportunity to kind of dig into it. Before we let you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have like, for example, uh, Mark Elias on one hand saying that Fusion GPS had been providing legal services and then saying, oh, no, that's not the case. So they don't have this, you know, they can't say it was legal services. So what were they doing? Well, they were fabricating uh, the Russian collusion nonsense and, and the uh, the dirty dossier. I mean, it's just, you know, it's this it, it, you, when you bore into it and you dig into it, I think they thought with many of the schemes that these people run, they think they're going to win and they think it'll just be buried and it'll, it'll never be exposed. But, you know, Durham is like this, uh, I know mean, he's just like a, a, a bulldog sort of pushing his way through muscling his way through the nonsense and the BS and starting to sort it out where these people are being, you know, it's beginning to be that they're, they're contradicting themselves and it's going to be, you know, either you're going to be prosecuted for perjury or, you know, you're going to have to point to who, I mean, it, yeah, it, it's all leading towards the dragon lady Durham is putting who pressure. really deserves her due, frankly. Um, if not, if not, yeah, I doubt she'll ever necessarily be prosecuted, but certainly to have an official record exposing what a crooked, deceitful, lying, uh, monstrous hag she is, frankly. I mean, she is just a, a cancer on this country and has been for all of this would have been swept under the rug. Nothing to see here, folks. Yeah, and that, that, that's the scariest part. I mean, God knows if she had won, oh my God, we'd have been in a nuclear war with Russia already. Well, she wanted a no-fly zone. She wanted a no-fly zone in Syria. And I was like, that woman is nuts. That woman is nuts. She's I always felt, yeah, I always felt she was like, she wanted to start a war, get into war, just to be able to say, yes, yeah, see, a woman can wage a war too. You know, that yeah, kind oh, of. Oh, yeah, I see that. It's like, you know, destroying the world is better when a woman is doing it. <laughs> Somehow. Well, I appreciate your having. I appreciate being with you, with you, and I hope to be back with you again soon. Absolutely, Tyler Nixon, Army Infantry veteran, counselor at law, constitutionalist, advocate, writer, technologist, critical historian, and extremist in defense of liberty. Also, Roger Stone's attorney. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan. We'll be taking your calls. The number is two zero two five two one one three two zero. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Manila Chan coming to you out of our station in Washington, D.C. And there is news that is being reported. Elon Musk expected to serve as temporary Twitter CEO after the deal closes. And you're going to get a lot of liberals moving to Canada. Yeah, we'll <laughs> see. Right. It's like, oh, we're leaving to Canada. We're moving to Canada. We're leaving. We're a Abandoning Twitter. Sure. We're abandoning Twitter. So we'll see. We're going to have all of these other Truth 2 networks they're from too, liberals. Now they're too thirsty. They'll be back. It's fine. Yeah, they ain't going nowhere. Thirsty. What is that? They're too thirsty. I always love that word. Thirsty. They're that person thirsty. is that person is thirsty. And so, yeah, temporary after he takes yeah, over. We'll see. And he is going to be able to set his mark in regards to what he wants Twitter mm -hmm. to be with that control. But let's do this. We have calls. Tarif, New Orleans. Welcome back, Tarif. How you doing, my hey, man? Tarif. Thank y'all for taking my call. I have four, I have four comments. And uh, first, I'd like to say free drilling science. I got to get something off my chest. Uh-oh. Go for it. 
by me by me being a whistleblower, been through hell for the past eight years, so I understand what Julian Science is going through. For the first year and a half, I kept my mouth closed because you know I was like the average citizen afraid. You know, this do this, they do this to activists, to do that to whistleblowers, this, that, and the other. But I had no choice, you know what I'm saying, because I had too much potential. So I had to speak up, and, and, and hopefully one day I can speak in front of Congress and Senate, and a whole bunch of people can go to jail. And I, I'm, and I will be happy when that day happens. So I, I want to testify one day. Okay, my first comment, the housing market is not doing good, especially when they raise up. When they raise it up again, the um, the fifty basis points again. Interest rates, yeah, they went a half base point. They thought they were going to do point two five. They ended up doing a half. And like Wolf was saying, every time you raise that, that's not just. I mean, I get they want to cut down on borrowing, but the fact of the matter is, people with housing, anything that has a loan associated with it, that's going to have an interest rate associated with it, is going up significantly. Yeah, the housing market is going to suffer through the summer, going into fall. It's going to be three percent by the end of the year. Um, the WTO, World Trade Organization's rumors in Russia that Russia might pull out of it. Now, if they do pull out of it, you see all that patent material the U.S. and Europe have? Country pull out the WTO, then go ahead and pull those patents. They can start creating stuff on their own, and, you know, because oh, interesting. WTO. Yeah, so that's my second comment. I got two more comments. That's a, that's a good idea. It's, it's rumors. I don't know how true I'm hearing that it's false, that I'm hearing that it's true. The Russians might increase the troop strength in um, Ukraine to put more pressure on the um, Ukrainian troops so they can take out the, um, the parts of Ukraine that they want. So, uh, um, and also Ukraine is starting to send more troops to the, the east, and, uh, but it's not good. It's not doing, they're not, um, it's not going good for them at all. And my last comment, um, I, I, feel, I, I miss y'all first hour. But I don't know if y'all spoke about this, but I'm going to go over it anyway. Yesterday, the Russian administration spoke with Hamas delegation delegation that came there. And um, they spoke to them about security and the holy sites and things of that nature in uh, Russia. Lavrov, he was, the, he was the main guy that spoke to Hamas uh, leader that came there. And, um, Israel was upset about that. So. We're going to see what's going to happen in the next coming days or weeks or months about that. What a coincidence that is. Think about that. Israel gets mad at Sergei Lavrov for making the comment about Hitler. And then a day or so later, Hamas is visiting Moscow, the delegation. I mean, right here, emissaries from Palestine Hamas movement arrived last night in Moscow, where they intend to hold a number of meetings with Russian officials. Um, the news portal reported on Wednesday. The delegation, among others, includes the deputy head of Hamas Political Bureau, uh, Broad Masao Abak, I mean Abu Muzuk. I tried, and two more representatives of the movement leadership, Fatah Hamad and Hassan Barad. According to the news outlet, all the talks in Moscow they are planning to discuss the situation around Jerusalem, the Palestinian dossier in general, and relations with Russia. Interesting, interesting. Thanks for bringing it up, Tarif. Yeah, Tarif, uh, you should join the Rumble chat room. The Rumblers want to get to know you. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, my man. Thank you, Tarif. Um, great story. That's uber interesting and coincidental. I mean, am I wrong on that? There's I mean, no, you, there's it, no coincidences. There's no coincidences here. It's like I, it's like I believe in coincidences, but I don't trust coincidences in the word of God. No, I don't believe on, in coincidences. And, and I think we have one more caller. I think we, we do. Have David, David from New York City. David's calling back. What's going on, David? Hi. Uh, yes. Uh, with respect to uh, 
China's uh, uh, attempts to worry about the, uh, the Taiwan, yeah, uh, uh, Amer- U.S.'s uh, attempt to impose or uh, maintain uh, global hegemony. I think India is a key player here, and, and if I were China, I would recommend, highly recommend to their leadership that they consider uh, negotiating a, fa- a peace deal favorable to India, okay, on, on the border issue, because how, how important is the border issue relative to, to the threats against them uh, 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 with AUKUS and, the, and Japan, South Korea, and all, all the encirclement, uh, so they, they, should, they should give uh, India a, a very favorable deal, both economically and, and militarily, uh, on, the, on the border issue and, and, and on trade. And, and that and that will potentially cement a three-way semi-alliance: India, China, Russia, which will basically block the, the hegemony. Thousand percent agree, Mark. All David. the BRICS nations. Thousand percent agree. I mean, that, think Very of that for the moment. David. I mean, you basically confuse a, a, an organization between those three major major nations. What India, one point five billion; China, one point three billion; Russia, a massive massive country. I mean, it's yeah. Great conversation, David. Guys. Thank all of you for this. I want to thank our engineer, our producer. I want to thank my co-host, Manila Chan. Got to thank our awesome. rumblers. And our rumblers, the people who are basically hit that rumble button, share this video. We will see you tomorrow. You guys have a phenomenal day. Bye. Doctor Strange comes out today also. Oh, goodness. Comes out today. Definitely go check it out. But look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, phenomenal day. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a good one, guys. Fault Lines.